Number 100? 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 Take this, brother. May it serve you well. to Discord and Rhyme, a podcast where we discuss our most favorite albums song by song, no matter how many of them there are. Roll call. I am Amanda Rogers. I'm Rich Bennell. I'm Ben Marlin. I'm John McFerrin. And I am Dan Watkins. And we technically don't have a host for this one because it is our 100th episode. Woohoo! At long last, we've justified our three-digit numbering system. (laughs) They said we'd never make it. Very ambitious. (laughs) All right. Usually every 25 episodes, we'll pick a major artist and do a double feature. Previously, that's been Yes, Steely Dan, and Genesis. But for our 100th episode, we thought we would pick the most major artist who just happened to release two albums in one back in 1968, the self-titled monster that is commonly known as the White Album by the Beatles. Now, why did we pick this album? I actually don't know. It wasn't my idea. Whose idea was this? I think it was John's. That sounds right. Yeah, Yeah. it sounds like a John idea. Let's just say it was John's. Okay, John, why did you pick this one? I love the White Album. (laughs) I I, I love double albums. I've I've established this on the show many times. Um, But the White Album, in many ways, it's like the er double album in terms of what... I love about these things. Like there's there's many great many tracks that are clearly obviously great. And there's all sorts of stuff that people like to fight about saying like oh maybe this should go, maybe this should go. And to me I keep all of it even some of the stuff that I actively dislike. And mm-hmm. for me this is an album where there is something for everybody, there's a lot of something for everybody. And even if you don't like all of it, you will like enough of it. And that's why I wanted to talk about it. That is a good bunch of reasons. So, personal histories with the Beatles and the White Album. Uh, John, why don't you go? You already, I mean, we heard yours in Revolver, but you can recap it again. Sure. Um, I got into the Beatles late. I first uh, decided I should try to give the Beatles a shot um, in my freshman year of college. I had thought as a, as a teenager, my first few years of getting into rock music, that I didn't like the Beatles. I decided... Maybe I should reconsider. I'm starting to feel silly from the circles that I run in about this. I bought Abbey Road, loved it. Bought Sgt. Pepper, loved it a little less, but uh, came around on it pretty hard. 
And then I bought the White Album, for which I paid full sticker price and then some. Uh, from my nearby uh, college bookstore, it cost me forty dollars and nineteen ninety nine dollars. Jeez, wow. was it in the long Yikes. box? It was not. <laughs> oh, um, and I instantly loved it. And it it really again it. It, it wasn't just an album I loved, but it was also, I think, the first really big double album, again, to, to alert me to the fact that, wait, I love mess. <laughs> and that is my history with this album. <laughs> All right, Rich, why don't you go next? Where are you coming from? Well, little known fact, I was the fifth Beatle. It was me. <laughs> oh, okay. I thought it was a poo. <laughs> So I've been into the Beatles since I was literally about four years old, but the White Album was never really the Beatles album I listened to growing up. And so my dad, he owned their complete catalog on CD, but he mostly stuck to playing Abbey Road and Magical Mystery Tour and occasionally A Hard Day's Night and Sgt. Pepper's. But it was mostly those first two that I mentioned. And we actually had a game where whenever Maxwell Silverhammer was playing, one of us would try to sneak up on the other and like gently bonk them on the head in time with the chorus. <laughs> sure. <Aww. laughs> yeah. So I actually have very fond and warm nostalgic memories associated with that novelty song about murdering women. <laughs> bang, bang, Maxwell Silverhammer came down upon her head. Bang, bang, Maxwell Silverhammer made sure that she was dead. That is genuinely adorable. Anyway, so I, I didn't really get around to hearing the White Album until I was at my friend's place when I was a teenager playing Mario 64 or Star Fox 64. or It was, it was something 64. It was always something 64. <laughs> and he threw the album on in the background. And I, did, honest, I honestly didn't really know what to think of it because I was used to like the perfect Beatles polish of songs like Something and Strawberry Fields Forever. And these songs sounded like they were broken in some way. Mm. And it took me yeah. a while to adjust. And the White Album still isn't really my Beatles album, but it's still an excellent group of fascinating songs with a fascinating history. All right. I really like that. Dan, what is your fascinating history? Uh, I mean, the Beatles were just always a presence in my house growing up. Uh, I'm not really sure where the White Album figures into my Beatles chronology. I know I heard Sgt. Pepper first, and that was the first one that I was really kind of fascinated by. Uh, so from there, it's just a blur of going through my parents' Beatles records. And at some point I became quite fascinated with the white album. Uh, my dad from the get go pitched it to me as, you know, the, the Beatles album with all the scary Charles Manson connections to it. <laughs> so <laughs> it's always had this kind of dark, spooky mystique to it. Um, and it still does to me, like it's got all the weird stuff on it. You know, it being a double album, it's the one that has all the weird detours and dark hidden corners on it. Uh, and as much as I listen to it, I still hear new things. It still sounds fresh to me. And it's become my favorite Beatles record for that reason. It's the one that I'm more likely to reach for than any other. Even though, I mean, for a per song basis, it has a lower batting average than many other Beatles records. I still like it the best because it's just a fascinating mm. listen. Um, and it's, Again, it's still my favorite. Volume matters. Yeah, exactly. I was just thinking <laughs> that. The Beatles, yes. <laughs> well, that's what a lot of people say. More Beatles is better Beatles. And this is the most Beatles. <laughs> what's not to love? So, Ben, what's your history with the White Album? It's funny. My, my go-to childhood Beatles memory is always that we had Abbey Road on CD and, and listening to Octopus's Garden. Because when you're a kid, that's that's the one that you love. 
But mm-hmm. I just remember for the first time in like 20 years, my dad had the White Album on vinyl and I loved listening to it. And it just, I sort of absorbed that into just my general memory of, of getting into the Beatles. But this is one that I got into sooner than most other Beatles albums. And, and I found it fascinating. I loved it then. Um, and then I just became a Beatles nut as I got older, read the expanded edition of the Mark Lewison book and, and a bunch of other Mark Lewison books. And I'm sure books by other people too, uh, to the extent that they matter. Uh, but I love the Beatles and I'm excited to talk about this one. All right. Well, I am going to save my personal history for our next chunk of songs because I'm not really here. I'm just here to Who? give the band history <laughs> and keep the conversation moving along. But I mean... We all know how good I am at keeping quiet when the Beatles are being discussed. So, yeah, we'll see how that goes. (laughs) So who are the Beatles anyway? This is going to be hard. It is. It's the Beatles, you guys. Their history is huge. And I am going to say right up front that a lifetime of absorbing every bit of Beatles related minutia I can find has warped my brain. And so my gauge of how much trivia other people know and how much they care is completely broken. So I'm going to do my best. And if I get too far into the weeds, I am counting on my co-host to pull me back out. And I have prepared in advance this time. So this is not going to be like when I did an off the cuff Beatles history in our revolver episode and forgot to say their names. That was great. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's what happens when I don't prepare. So as Ben reminded me back then, the Beatles were John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison and Ringo Starr, a super group composed of future members of the Plastic Ono Band, Wings, the Traveling Wilburys and the All-Star Band. Checks out. (laughs) They got together in Liverpool, England in the late 1950s, and they started their career as a bar band in Hamburg, Germany, before they landed a record contract with EMI in 1962, a series of events that Mark Lewison took around 750 pages to describe in his book, (laughs) Tune In. Ben, back me up. That's not an exaggeration, is it? Oh, no, no, no. (laughs) I believe you. They were so fresh and innovative and just plain great that they conquered the world almost immediately. In 1963, they released the album Please Please Me. Please, 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 won't like I please you. Followed by With the Beatles. And then while I'm away, I'll ride home every day and I'll send all my loving to you. A Hard Day's Night. It's been a hard 
Beatles for Sale. Every Exclamation point. Help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Help, you know I need someone. Help. Rubber Soul. Jeez, show me how. Isn't it good? No, we don't. Revolver. Cause I'm the tax man. Yeah, I'm the tax man. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. With Sergeant Pepper's Magical Mystery Tour. Plus a bucket load of non-album singles. She was a day All in the period between 1963 and 1967. By 1968, when the White Album was made, the seeds of the Beatles' destruction had already been sown. (laughs) Big dramatic sound effect here. Their manager, Brian Epstein, had died very suddenly in 1967. And is it Epstein or Epstein? I can never remember. I've heard it both ways, I feel. Yeah. I think he deliberately pronounced it the other way from how the rest of his family did, but I can never remember which was which. I'm going to go with Epstein as the the deliberate mispronunciation. So, yeah, he died in 1967, very unexpectedly. And after that, they just did not know what to do with themselves. They decided that they didn't really need a manager and could just handle everything themselves, which was a colossal mistake because it, it added an enormous workload of running the business of the Beatles on top of their already enormous workload of being the Beatles And none of them could handle it because nobody could handle all that. And so their personal relationships had started started to splinter under all that pressure. So early in 1968, they all went off to India to learn transcendental meditation, which was meant to be a positive thing. But the situation at the ashram just wasn't quite what they were expecting. And they, they left all at different times on mostly bad terms. Beatles, stop fighting in India. (laughs) (laughs) So then in May of 1968, they reconvened at Abbey Road in bad moods. Now, this is a massive oversimplification of the situation, but they were overworked, disillusioned, and generally stressed out. Also, Yoko was there. And I think most people have realized by now that she is not the villain of the story, the way she was made out to be for so long. In fact, there isn't really a villain in the story at all. But she is a very big part of it, and there was a lot of Yoko-related tension, whether it was her fault or not, and I'd say mostly not. Fortunately, they had written a bunch of songs in India, and they may have been stressed out, but they were still the Beatles, and therefore capable of coming up with amazing music on cue. So even though the sessions were emotionally fraught, and often did not include all four Beatles at any given time, and got so negative and unpleasant that engineer Jeff Emmerich up and quit, the world got 30, that is 30, new Beatles songs that are often incredible, sometimes bizarre, and always interesting. So here's how we're going to handle this. We've broken the album up into four chunks, one for each album side, because talking about 30 songs all at once would probably kill us all. (laughs) And what you're about to hear is disc one with a shift change halfway through. 
and you're going to get just two tomorrow. I, I could do it all in one go. I've got my speed here, just like the Beatles would have done. <laughs> How were they on by what album time? Were they still doing acid or was it purely weed? That's true. They'd passed up the speed days by this point. Yeah, the speed days were long gone. <laughs> Before we get started on this beautiful behemoth, many thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters who give us money. That's what we want. <laughs> if you would like a ticket to ride, so to speak, go to patreon.com slash discordpod to experience the magical mystery tour that is our exclusive bonus episodes. <laughs> if you're not into Patreon, we can work it out. Just help us spread the word about the podcast by tweeting, telling your friends, or starting a revolution. You can also help us out by purchasing the albums we talk about or anything else, really, through the Amazon affiliate links on our website, discordpod.com. We get a small commission from anything you might happen to buy on that visit at no additional cost to you, although it can't buy us love. Mm. While you're on our website, you can find the show notes for all of our episodes, including extra information, corrections, and Spotify playlists of all the songs we clipped in each episode. And for this one, that is going to be a lot. Oh, yes. You're going to want to check that out. You know our name. Look up the number. <laughs> awesome. So it's time to get started. Are you guys ready? Yes. Yeah. All right. Then yes, we're going to start off with back in the USSR. Oh, it's the Beastie Boys. <laughs> Man, that Ringo was really something. (laughs) (laughs) Or was it Ringo? Feeling unappreciated and unhappy, Ringo Starr temporarily quit the Beatles. Did he ever return? You're just going to have to keep listening. So the drummer on the first song on the White Album is one Paul McCartney. Who? Now, I'm not saying that Paul wanted Ringo to quit because he didn't, but he was very likely itching to step in and do the things everyone else was doing and in his mind, at least do them better. I can picture him standing just behind George Martin in his producer's chair going, feeling all right there, George? I thought I heard you cough there. Maybe you should just go rest for a few days and I'll just keep the chair warm while you're gone. No, well, you're not sick. That's probably for the best. Uh-oh, I need it on the studio floor. George Harrison just flubbed a guitar chord. And <laughs> off he flies. So that was Paul on drums on Back in the USSR. He does a basic job. It's not super well regarded by drummers, but he still anchors a driving rock and roll track. He also plays piano, bass, guitar, and percussion. And he cleaned up the studio when they were all done because the regular janitor, nice chap, certainly, but he missed a lot of spots last night. I'm sure you all noticed that, right? Still, as much as the song isn't their baby, John and George do not slack here. They both play guitar and bass, and they both add a bit to the drum track. So it took a full band to record a song this hot, or at least three quarters of a full band. The lyrics are hilarious. They're a cracked mirror take on Chuck Berry's song back in the USA. In 
this case, the narrator is a citizen of the Soviet Union who just flew in from America and is relieved to be back home where he's most comfortable and where he could urge his wife or girlfriend to keep her comrade warm. There's a double entendre of Paul singing, Georgia is always on my mind, referencing the Hoagie Carmichael standard made most famous by Ray Charles, but also cheekily referencing the Soviet state of Georgia. My uncle, a very smart guy, once told me that the line was actually JoJo's always on my mind, as in everyone there was brainwashed into thinking about Joseph Stalin and how great he was. That's not a correct reading of the lyrics, but it's not crazy either, and it makes for an interesting alternate universe reading of the song. That's what I thought the line was for a long time. Yeah. I just didn't know who JoJo was. Oh, I mean, maybe that's a, a common theory. It's, that's the only time that I had heard it. The song's middle eight is a hilarious take on California Girls by the Beach Boys, uh, in which Paul sings the praises of girls in different parts of the USSR with a complex Brian Wilson-style harmony arrangement in the background. Well, Not to criticize Paul McCartney's sense of pastiche, but it, that, that always struck me as more of like a Jan and Dean type surf song melody right there. Yeah. I really like that. I never thought of that, but that's a, I like the distinction. Supposedly, the, the Beach Boys slash Jan and Dean pastiche was the, <laughs> the idea of Beach Boys lead singer Mike Love. Uh, he suggested it. He said he suggested it to Paul McCartney while they were all meditating in India. Maybe. I think it's fair to say, though, that if Mike Love really had contributed to the composition of a Beatles song, he absolutely would have taken Paul McCartney to court in the (laughs) 70s or 80s. That there was no such lawsuit, which would have brought eternal shame to the Beach Boys name, is Mike Love's tacit admission that maybe he exaggerated that story a little. Anyway, the lyrics to this song are whip smart and concise and funny. There isn't a syllable wasted. As much as I love Paul McCartney's solo career so much, I'm not sure where this Paul went after 1970. Up in a puff of smoke, I guess you could say. Back in the USSR is as clever and catchy and authoritative as any rock and roll song needs to be. It's a perfect opener for the album. So have you ever engaged with art as a child where it kind of goes over your head and you just take it at face value, and then mm-hmm. it takes you yeah. a while to really reevaluate it as an adult. Mm-hmm. I am embarrassed by how long it took me to really piece together the back in the USA connection because <laughs> I didn't know that song <laughs> as a kid, and I just thought USSR sounds like a pretty fun place. <laughs> Don't be embarrassed. It took me a very right. long time to connect those dots too. Same and the song here. made a lot more sense when I yeah. realized what it was riffing on. I mean, I was probably in my 20s when I first heard uh, back in the USA. But um, what's interesting to me is you know, the White Album comes right after Sgt. Pepper and Magical Mystery Tour, which are these very ornate, psychedelic albums. And this seems like a deliberate stripping down of the mm-hmm. elements into yep. a, a straight-ahead rock song. Uh, and I can't think of a better opener of the 30 tracks you know, to introduce the album with, because it's a really great kind of gear shift and where they were. Uh, but I, I feel like I've read people slag this one a bit as being 
kind of a novelty, but it's too good to be a novelty. I think like it's mm-hmm. really great. Uh, you know, I, I like this mode of Paul. Um, and even though he's playing most of the instruments here, I mean, it's 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 a really great energetic song. Yeah. Uh, I think it walks right up to the edge of being a novelty song, but it doesn't quite tip over. And it's fierce. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. even if even if the idea is a bit of a novelty, it's just a great rock and roll song. Yeah. Yeah. John, what do you think of it? You know, as individual tracks, um, I, I think reasonable debate can be had as to what is the best Beatles album opener. But as an opener, in terms of like how it functions in the context of the album as a whole, this is the best Beatles album opener. Mm-hmm. Um, like so much of the start of this album is, you know, to, to piggyback off of something Dan said, so much is built off the idea of them basically as aggressively as they can to the listener saying, we're not doing psychedelia again. No, really, we're not doing psychedelia. Again. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and this track, like, like, is designed to just like drive that as hard into the listener's uh, consciousness as, as much as possible. Saying, okay, like, this is somewhat of a return to the past, but this still feels new. There's all these pieces being brought in that that, uh, you know, feel different. They're they're combined in different ways. Um, there's a punchiness here that's different from punchiness on things in in their earlier albums. I, I I adore this song just mm-hmm. just from top to bottom um, in in terms of the richness of the piano sound that's underpinning it uh, the guitar bits they're they're laid on top of it um, again like you know that middle eight is ridiculous <laughs> and it's so perfect but but today's like so much of this album is is songs where you know they threw in one extra element to push it over the edge from really good to all-time classic. And they get they get started with that right away with this track. See, so yeah, I, I am an enormous fan of Back in the USSR. I love this one because it sounds huge. Like, mm-hmm. it's just a real, it's a really good sonic encapsulation of just how, like, big and international the Beatles had become by this point in their career. Because, like, when you think about it, the geographic scope of this song is really all over the place. Like, it was written in India. It's a pastiche of a Beach Boy song about California. It was rewritten to be about the Soviet Union. Like, they were just pulling from all over the map. Yeah. And, it, like, Ben mentioned uh, Ringo huffing out of, their, of those sessions and temporarily quitting the band. And when he did that, he didn't just run down to the pub. He took off to hang out with Peter Sell and Sardinia. <laughs> like, <laughs> they, they could just globetrot at this point. I, I guess what I'm getting at is that a problem that all bands run into as they get huge is how to draw artistic inspiration from like the experience of being rich and famous. And Back in the USSR is like the kind of song you can only write and produce when you're about as rich and famous as it gets. Like this yep. is a famous person's or this is a famous band's song, but yeah. it's like still catchy, creative, idiosyncratic, and it's just loaded with ideas. Like Uh, When I hear this song, I can definitely understand how unsustainable the Beatles ultimately were as a band. Like through this whole album, you can hear the whole jet like kind of coming apart at the seams, so to speak. And something eventually had to break. But uh, I don't know. It's just such a glorious high. And this is a great way to start it off. That's great. Rich. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, that was a really, really fantastic opening track. And now we've got one hell of a track, too. This is Dear Prudence. The slate column? (laughs) No. Nope.
My strongest held position about the White Album, and one of the main reasons that I hold it so high in my personal rankings, is that this is the most perfectly sequenced album I've ever heard, mm-hmm. especially when accounting for the degree of difficulty that comes with properly slotting 30 tracks. Part of this perfect sequencing comes from the band absolutely nailing its choice for track two, a quiet, contemplative Lennon ballad coming out of the good-timey, rollicking fun of the opener. The Prudence in this song is Prudence Farrow, the sister of famed actress Mia Farrow, and somebody the band met during the period in February 1968 when Dewey Cox was pleading with the Beatles to stop fighting in India. (laughs) Prudence became obsessed with meditation to the point that she wouldn't leave her bungalow. And Lennon and Harrison with whom she got along best, were tasked with keeping an eye on her and reminding her that the outside world was interesting too. By the time Lennon wrote this song, he had soured on meditation. In much the same way, he spent most of his adult life souring on any life philosophy or experience that he had had more than six months previous. (laughs) But he hadn't soured on the beauty of nature, and thus the song has a tone of quiet celebration to it. As with so many of the best Beatles songs, this one feels relatively simple from a distance, but it becomes incredibly fascinating and intricate when examined up close. The song is essentially an arrangement crescendo, starting with a simple picking pattern on an electric guitar that Lennon picked up from the artist Donovan, later picking up some additional guitars from Harrison, and ultimately opening up into a triumphant celebration with excited drumming and an ecstatic piano from McCartney, before fading back into the quiet of the beginning. Along the way, the song makes a fascinating detour in what I guess is the middle eight, with Lennon singing Look Around, while backing vocals echo with round, 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 round. It's not necessarily an incredible idea on its own, but it feels to me like the final piece the song needed to vault it into the stratosphere. Because without it, the song pacing wouldn't allow the grandiose climax to provide such a satisfying payoff. Look around, round, 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 
Overall, I consider this song a masterwork. And back when I still had time for Beatles Rock Band, this was one of my favorite songs in the game to sing. On one New Year's Eve, I sang, I was going to sing all of Abbey Road on Beatles Rock Band, but then the guy on drums messed up during the end and they didn't have it on no fail mode. So yeah, defeat from the jaws of victory. (laughs) Rich, what do you think of Dear Prudence? Oh, I love it. I I guess in terms of the theme of the song, I I think the idea of meditation as a competitive sport is hilarious. (laughs) Like every time you meditate, you bank up more like meditation experience points. And the song feels kind of condescending now that I know the whole story, but I do like that Lennon wrote a song that could be used for meditation in its own right, which is much more than I can say about Transcendental Meditation by the Beach Boys. (laughs) (laughs) Mike Love's own tribute to his time with the Maharishi. sued rich i also like the transition between back in the ussr and this song when the when the plane is like fading out because it it like paints really cinematic pictures in my head like you're watching like a jet crash into the horizon and then there's like a gentle sunset and john is sitting in the foreground playing this like gentle beautiful song and that's when the movie really begins john mcferrin right (laughs) yes that's the one Ben, what do you what do you think about it yeah this is a lovely uplifting song I, i liked everything that you all have said about it the song shimmers and it glows And it shows us that wherever John had been creatively before he went to India, he found his spark again while he was there. He's involved here. He's not too cool for school or for his own band. And since he spent the 70s trying to convince us that being a Beatle was all right, I guess, but he was never 100% into it, uh, it's nice to hear a track like this and be reminded that that was all kind of disingenuous horseshit. There's some debate, just a little bit among online nerds, about who's playing the drums in the final minute of the song. On the one hand, there's zero documentation suggesting that Ringo might have come in after the initial sessions and overdubbed the drums, uh, because Paul is credited on the drums. Um, And it, it was initially recorded while Ringo was away with Peter Sellers in Sardinia. On the other hand, the drumming in that last minute is amazing. And as much time as Paul spent coveting his neighbor's drum kit, he never learned to play a tenth as good as Ringo did. (laughs) So maybe that's Ringo at the end of the song. Probably not, but maybe. Yeah, I've heard that theory too, actually. Yeah, Paul was an adequate drummer, but not a... He wasn't Ringo. Yeah. Dan, please don't tell us that you don't like Dear Prudence. (laughs) (laughs) No. um, (laughs) What's funny is, and this just occurred to me, all the meditation talk, the whole round, round, round thing sounds like it's a mantra. And I wonder if that was an intentional thing that they picked Mm. up. Uh, The thing that sticks with me with this more than anything, though, is that the guitar tone at the beginning is so unique. I've never heard that sound. Like, it's a very, like, glassy, kind of shimmery tone. I've never really heard anywhere else. It's a really interesting tone. Uh, there might have been a Leslie speaker involved. I'm pretty sure I read that somewhere. It's always a Leslie speaker. Yeah, if it sounds cool, it's a Leslie. There's definitely Leslie on a song coming up for sure. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, it, uh, Dear Parents is great. Of course it is. Um, I, I, I think you guys pretty much covered everything though. Because it's again that the 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 build of it is what really makes it amazing. Because I think this mm-hmm. is a song that initially as a kid didn't impress me because you know you went from back in the ussr to glass onion and this you have this like kind of you know more thoughtful song in between them and uh 
growing into it, I was like, oh, this is a masterpiece. <laughs> it's kind yeah. of been just yeah. in front of my face the whole time. But uh, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great song. I have just a couple small remarks to make because I'm not going to let Dear Prudence pass by without, you know, <laughs> sharing my opinion on it. Uh, this is one of my favorite Beatles songs. Um, and I remember back in 2000, 2001, and uh, uh, chatting with Rich and John on AOL Instant Messenger <laughs> about Dear Prudence, Brain Damage, and even in the quietest moments, the Pink Floyd and Supertramp songs, and trying to decide <laughs> whether the similarities were deliberate or accidental. <laughs> so the Supertramp conversation was definitely me. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, you were the one who brought that one up. So yeah, we've been at this for a really long time. Yep. Uh, the other thing I've that I really like about this song. I I mean, like Ben said, there's not really any documentation that Ringo was there, but I could swear I hear him in the backing vocals on the round, round, round part. Oh, I got to listen for that. I love this, that kind of mystery. Yeah. And I, they didn't often put Ringo on the backing vocals, uh, but I absolutely love it when they did. Like one of my favorite things in the whole Beatles catalog is on uh, Carry That Weight with Ringo booming away in the background. Mm-hmm. It's so great. So, yeah, I just I don't know for sure if that's him or maybe it was Paul because he could do some funky things with his voice, but. Whoever's doing it, that just that little piece of the song really makes it perfect. You do a good job singing like Ringo Starr, but but let me show you how to sing like Ringo Starr. <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, I'm pretty sure that's what happened, that Ringo got fed up with Paul telling him what to do and like threw his drumsticks at him and said, you do it then, and yeah. ran off to Sardinia. <laughs> Oh, I also have a cover of this song to play. Uh, this was covered in 1984 by the post-punk band Susie and the Banshees. And yeah. they play it pretty straight, but sometimes that's all you need to do. Yeah, Susie and the Banshees have forever been on my list to explore in more detail, and I'm going to have to get on that. Yeah, they're really good. I like them. I'm glad you didn't pass this one by, Amanda. <laughs> Don't pass your prudence by. <laughs> Think ahead of ourselves, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> All right, it is time to look through a glass onion. I told you about strawberry peel. You know the place where nothing is real. Well, here's another place you can go. So Glass Onion is basically a piss take, as the English would say. Uh, It's poking fun at people who would read too far into the Beatles' lyrics and mythology. Uh, 
John is sort of playfully piling on the would-be conceptual continuity with references to past songs, basically screwing with anyone who would actually bother to try to parse the song for any deep meaning. With all this in mind, the lack of clues pertaining to Paul's tragic, untimely death is a bit disappointing. <laughs> the walrus was Paul. But was it a dead walrus? But the walrus wasn't Paul, though, right? The- it was John. But the walrus <laughs> is a symbol of death in certain, I want to say, some subset of Indian culture. I am way too far into the Paul is dead stuff, you guys. <laughs> I didn't know that one. <laughs> The original Isher demo of the song is a pretty loose sketch of a song, but with the full band, this forms into one of my favorite songs on the album. Just the groove on this thing is so good. I don't think I've ever heard Paul's bass sound this heavy and gritty by this point in the Beatles' career. You can really hear the attack of his pick on the strings, even. It's a really thick, like, upfront sound. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I just love about this song is the juxtaposition of this really pretty raw band take with the string or arrangement floating on top of it. It's a really interesting sound. Uh, you know, it's it's ornate, but it's full of jagged edges. It's a strange, surreal effect. Most of all, the song just rocks. And the breakdown in the middle where John's oh yes build up to that scream, I think is one of the best like rock moments in the Beatles catalog. <laughs> say that I, I actually in, in preparing for this i was listening to the 2018 remix so maybe it boosted the bass a little bit but either way it, it sounds great <laughs> um, a little bit they cranked the bass up about as far as it would go for that remix which i think is great but i also think it's pretty funny how the two surviving beatles are the ones whose contributions got amped up yeah. the ultimate proof that paul is alive <laughs> more Beatles bass is a good thing yeah (laughs) and then to make it even weirder the song ends with this big question mark that odd tacked on string outro that makes it sound like the song is just awkwardly sulking off the stage And Dan, you pointed out to me how much that sounds like 1,000 Umbrellas by XTC. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I love that song, too. But yeah, Glass Onion is a song that's entirely designed the best with a listener, and I love it. Can you believe that John Lennon didn't like his voice? He didn't think he was a very good rock singer. It's crazy. It's just nuts. We are terrible judges of our own abilities. Yeah, no, I, I, I can, de- I can definitely sympathize with that. I hate my own voice. I hate every dish that I ever cook. Like my wife loves my cooking, what? but I hate everything that I cook. <laughs> ben, what do you think of Glass Onion? I got to imagine the string arrangement was George Martin's idea. He came to them and guys, this one's a little out of left field, but I thought we could put strings on this song. And all of them are played by Paul McCartney. 
<laughs> he plays a good cello. He does. <laughs> all at the same time. London Symphony Orchestra, you all are very good. It's just I thought maybe... He did um, that to anyway, the guest is... musicians from the symphony orchestra. <laughs> this is a fierce rock and roll track. Um, I mean, Ringo's drumming is just so tight here. The whole band cooks, and, and I'm glad that Dan pointed out the bass line because now I won't be able to unhear it, and that'll just... That'll just uh, enhance my enjoyment of the song. The strings are really cool, as Dan said, and and Paul's recorder playing is out there. I like it. Mm. As a song, it, it works better as a piece of Beatles inside baseball yeah. and yet another fascinating White Album production than maybe as a radio hit. You wouldn't expect to hear this on the Red Album or the Blue Album, uh, the greatest hits discs that the band released in the early 1970s. But I love Beatles inside baseball. There's a thrill for me in hearing John sing about how close he and Paul are, not just by his words, but by the way he sings the name Paul. His phrasing, at least to me, it conveys real respect. Just like he spent the next 12 years trying to convince us that the Beatles were just the way that he marked time until he met Yoko, he also spent the next 12 years chipping away at his relationship with Paul, trying to make us think that he never liked or respected him for reasons that include jealousy, insecurity, a feeling of abandonment, heroin, uh, but but that I've never fully understood. So this is refreshing because he loved Paul and he respected him like he never respected any other musician. And you can hear it all in this song. I think John was just a contrarian at heart. Everybody wanted him to love Paul, so he decided to hate Paul, at least as far <laughs> yeah. as the public was concerned. John, what do you think of Glass Onion? Just a few quick things. Number one, I'm absolutely in love with Ringo's drum sound. Yeah, yeah. And it, you know, it's a, it's a sound that he he gets a lot uh, on Beatles albums. But like, it's I like that you, there's like the first clear sound like, oh, Ringo's here. <laughs> like there's there's a clear shift in the way that uh, the snares are getting hit. It's 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 just delightful to me. It's so sharp and snappy sounding. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, second thing is, you know, piggybacking off off the idea of the uh, of the strings kind of slumping off stage at the end. I think of it as more than just like the strings themselves slumping off, or of uh, the song even slumping off. It almost feels like this is their way of making it so the the entire psychedelic era of the band is also slumping off. Oh. Yeah, this goes back to this idea mm-hmm. of like you know part of what they're trying to do early on. It's like okay, we're going to acknowledge that happened. But really, we want to get past it and and just saying like, okay, we're not going to let this have like a big triumphant uh, and we're just going to kind of let it just fade away and float away. And then to that end, you know, yes, Glass Onion isn't a song that would work anywhere. It would only work here, but it's the only track that would work here. Like mm-hmm. this, like it has to be at this spot to, you know, add a a little bit of rock and energy, but also some surreality, but also to like formally say goodbye to, to an aspect of their past. Um, it's, it's just so good. Like, again, like not just as a song, but as a linchpin, like so many tracks on this album act as linchpins. And yeah, it's, I, I, I enjoy it every time I hear it. Rich. Oh, I love this one. I'm, I'm trying to think <laughs> of an earlier song that's quite like it. And I'm, I'm coming up blank. And I don't mean that I think the Beatles invented meta humor, because I have it on good authority that meta humor was invented by the adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle. 
But <laughs> uh, what I'm talking about is like the way that like Lennon is drawing on the entire extra textual world of the Beatles, especially yeah. the Paul is dead joke, which is just like uh, like the song references are one thing, but that's a gag you can't get from just listening to their albums. You have to know like the entire world surrounding them. And it's also just really funny. Like the line, well, here's another place you can go. It sounds like Lennon saying, I'll tell you where you can stick it to their millions of adoring fans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd always assumed that the title Glass Onion was just two words that sounded cool together. And it kind of is. But I think it's also a clever way to characterize the Beatles as music. Like it's layered, but it's also completely transparent. All of yep. the information yeah. you need to know is actually right in front of you. You don't need to overthink it. You stupid fans. <laughs> <laughs> stupid, adoring fans. <laughs> yeah. oh, well, I got I got that one from Beatlesbible.com. I didn't come up with any original observations about the Beatles. Oh. Thanks for that link, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> well. All of the thinking about the Beatles has been done before. That's one of the big challenges of them. That's true. <laughs> the next track is the first one that may be a little controversial. This is Obla Di Obla Da. goes on, brah. <laughs> Obladi Oblada is a light, joyful, carefree romp with an incredibly tense and fraught history, which just about sums up the Beatles at this point in their career. <laughs> so Paul McCartney intended this song as his attempt at a Jamaican ska song because reggae was cresting in popularity in Britain at the time, and the character Desmond in the lyrics is a reference to reggae musician Desmond Decker, who had recently toured the UK and is awesome. If you haven't heard him, check him out. So the title comes from an expression that McCartney learned from Jimmy Scott, a Nigerian conga player who lived in London, and Paul actually sent him a check in recognition of his contribution, which was nice of him. Oh, yeah. that is nice. Yeah, but that's just about where the lightheartedness ends. So the sessions for this three-minute song took a total of 42 hours because McCartney hmm. insisted on re-recording it with a variety of different arrangements. And as Amanda said earlier, the Beatles' longtime recording engineer Jeff Emmerich rage-quit the album the day after the song was completed, and John Lennon despised the song, calling it, quote, Paul's granny sh**. A well-known anecdote goes that after multiple failed attempts at recording the piano intro to the song, John arrived at the studio stoned out of his mind, sat down at the piano, and angrily banged out the intro at double speed. And some people say he was pretending it was Paul's skull. And that's the <laughs> intro that appears on the final recording. <laughs> so I totally understand why someone would hate this song, but I've always loved it. If it actually sounded like a polished, fussy studio creation, I would probably have a problem with it. But it, it, it somehow still sounds rough and scrappy. And without knowing the full history, I would never be able to tell how much time and money went into recording this song. And the first version of the song I heard actually wasn't the Beatles version, but a cover that was used as the theme song for the early 90s ABC family drama Life Goes On. Do you guys remember that show? I do. Yes. Indeed. I do. And that was my introduction, yeah. too. 
Yeah, yeah I, I was talking about it with with producer Mike, and I think both of us only watched it because it came on before America's Funniest Home Videos, which, <laughs> when I was six years old, was the best show in the world. <laughs> it was YouTube. Of course it was. It was. It was baby YouTube. <laughs> All right, Pete Bob Saget. <laughs> yeah, I remember hearing that theme song and thinking, that's, that's not how the song goes. This is weird. It's got Patty Lapone on it, though. Yeah. <laughs> Dan, what do you think about this one? I've always liked it. I think it's funny that this is the song that evokes so much hostility. I mean, it's cute, precious Paul, but it's not saccharine. It's fun. Um, you know, it's nothing deep, but I always liked it. It's got good energy. Speaking to the, I agree with Rich that I like that it's this rough around the edges arrangement because anthology three, I think has an alternate yeah. version that is a slicker studio take. And I don't like it as much. Oh, I don't that like that sense. one as much either. There's more room in it, so Paul, his voice has more character in it. He has a little more fun with it, whereas the other version's a little, little more uh, stiff. Um, and I don't know if it was a later take, who knows? But but I, I really like this. And again, the, the the part of what I like about the White Album is there is this rough around the edges feel to a lot of the stuff where it feels kind of off the cuff. And you know, there's like I don't know if there are mistakes in it, but it, it feels looser than previous Beatles stuff. But yeah, I like Obladi. I got no problem with it. All right. John, what about you? Yeah, I like it. It's it's not one of my absolute favorites on the album, but I, I do like the fact that there is this this fraught uh tension that's clearly underpinned in it. Uh, when I listen to it, there's act there's actually a, a a family guy reference point that I keep coming back to when I, <laughs> I think about the circumstances of making this. So there's a uh, a gag there's there's a family guy episode where peter griffin's friend joe who's uh usually in a wheelchair he gets a leg transplant so he can walk again uh become, but he becomes insufferable like forcing his friends over and over to do help him do all these things that he'd always wanted to do uh once he would get legs and one of the things that happens is over and over he makes them do a rendition of good morning from singing in the rain uh, to the point that they're like they're they're fighting back. They're not wanting to do it. And like at one point, Quagmire starts crying in the middle when uh, Joe roars, "So say good morning!" And just like and that's kind of how I imagine these sessions. As Paul say, like, no more enthusiasm until John comes in. Goes, F it. We're just getting this done right now. This is supposed to be fun. Yeah. So yeah, it's 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 a ridiculous song, but I like ridiculous Paul a lot of the time, and yeah. I, I, I'm very happy that this song is here. So is it like when retail stores have these positivity uh, meetings before opening where they all have to like do a Ooh, cheer? Geez. You yeah. can tell everyone's like being held hostage. Yes, <laughs> very much. Yeah. That's a good analogy. Ben, what about you? Yeah, I mean, as, as has been brought up, this song has a lot of haters or maybe it had one hater with unresolved jealousy issues <laughs> and a few million acolytes who decided that hating what he hated was a worthwhile substitute for making their own aesthetic judgments. <laughs> the hosts of the great Beatles podcast, Another Kind of Mind, have, have a, a wonderful name for those acolytes. Uh, they call them jean jackets. <laughs> and a lot of them were rock critics in the early 70s. 
Um, well, I think the jean jackets are crazy. Paul McCartney wrote some cheesy, twee, maudlin, cloying shit in his time, and this is not that. This is a big, catchy, warm, clever, lovable, sing-along pop classic. The most you could argue is that while the song is played by the Beatles, it's very, very Paul. None of the other Beatles get to do the things that they normally do best. Paul heard a sound in his head, and he directed his three brilliantly creative bandmates to just do the things that he wanted them to do. That's a bit of a waste, although Lennon's vocals do add a nice rough texture on the chorus. But if you're going to be subjected to anyone's musical vision, you could do way worse than Paul McCartney in 1968. You could listen to Obladi Oblada once and then enjoy it for the rest of your life without having to hear it again. If you didn't want to, but you should want to. Wow, I said this might be controversial, but I think I was projecting. <laughs> I'm, I, I, I don't, I don't like it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Somebody I don't not like it. dislike it, but it's annoying. And yeah, it's just this is an annoying song. Paul's granny shit is very hit or miss <laughs> for me. There's some yeah. of it that I really, really like, and there's an example of that later on this very album. And there's some of it that I really can't stand. And there's some of that later on this album too. Because the White Album contains multitudes. <laughs> yeah. Anybody who says they like every track on this album, I'm not going to quite call them a liar, but I will <laughs> look at them with a raised eyebrow. Yeah. Like there's, there's got to be at minimum like four tracks that make you go. Eh. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good ballpark estimate. There are two details about this song that I really like, though. The first one is how the second time through the bridge, Paul made a mistake with the lyrics. And he's yep. saying, uh, happy ever, ever in the marketplace. Molly lets the children lend a hand. And I'm fairly sure that was that was the take he made the mistake on. But he had the presence of mind to just roll with it. Hmm. And I that was a really good choice because it's just yeah. silly and funny. I like that detail. Um, the other interesting bit of trivia is that Paul learned nothing from the recording experience here. And then he went ahead and re-traumatized everybody with Maxwell's Silver Hammer and ultimately broke up the band. <laughs> so he's the villain. Maxwell is I the know. villain. That anvil is. Well, Amanda, you brought the controversy at least. I did. Well, you know, that's what I'm here for. I'm a very controversial figure. <laughs> We need the Discord. <laughs> I, I am known for the Discord. Well, yeah, I'm not the only thing known for the Discord because next song we've got on deck is Wild Honey Pie. <laughs> Ever since the White Album was released, one of the most persistent debates in relation to the album concerns the topic of what tracks somebody would cut if they whittled this down to a single album. If reducing this album from 30 tracks down to 14 or 15 is indeed your goal, then this is certainly a justifiable cut. This track is essentially the clipped portion performed three times, with some slight variation in the final iteration to give the track some closure. As one might expect, this McCartney track is a solo McCartney track filled with many overdubs of himself. 
And it's one of many tracks on this album where the customary Lennon-McCartney songwriting credit makes me snicker. <laughs> For me, this has always clearly been one of the weakest tracks on the album in a standalone sense. But as somebody who refuses to entertain the exercise of hacking tracks away from this album, I've long viewed it as one of the tracks that best explains the wide album and messy double albums generally. With few exceptions, I don't necessarily want my double albums packed wall to wall with material that the artist intended for clear greatness. I want moments to relax, moments that don't require my undivided attention, moments that serve as the equivalent of the album suggesting that I go to the lobby and get myself some snacks. <laughs> <laughs> Wild Honey Pie, along with the later track, Why Don't We Do It in the Road, shows that Paul was one of the first in rock music to understand the power of a grout track in improving mm. an album's flow. Mm. And I can't imagine the album without it. Finally, I have to mention a cover of this track that almost made the cut for inclusion in the bonus episode I did with Amanda and Mike some time ago about Beatles covers, good and bad. Oh boy. This comes from a Pixies BBC collection. And, well... It sounds like this. <sighs> I think it's a lot of fun. I can also understand why somebody else wouldn't. Rich, what do you think about this? Oh, it's the best song on the album. Obviously. <laughs> oh. No, I, I don't think that, but I do think it's just delightful. I, I regularly see it on lists of worst Beatles songs, and I always think, oh, come on, guys, try harder. Yeah. Don't pick on the shortest song on the White Album. That like <laughs> that feels like saying the worst Beatles song is like the Hey La Hey Lo Hey Lo Ha Coda at the end of Hello Goodbye. <laughs> Or I, I also feel the same way when people pick like uh, Z Liebdick or oh. uh, Come Give Me Your Dine Hand. Like, come on. <laughs> low hanging fruit. Yeah, low hanging fruit, exactly. And I would happily listen to Wild Honey Pie like 500 more times before I ever listen to Yesterday again. I swear to God. <laughs> uh, I, I think I like this song because it feels like something that would show up on a, like a Guided by Voices album or something. Yeah. I was just oh, thinking that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think that one of the lasting legacies of the White Album is defining what kinds of songs you can get away with putting on to an album. And there are some bands that just happen to really run with it, and Guided by Voices is one of them. And the Pixies are a lot drunker, though. Yeah, definitely. Well, <laughs> Paul was almost certainly stoned when he made this. So just, you know, given everything I know about him. Dan, you're the Guided by Voices expert around here. Do you agree with that? Oh, totally. And and I, I, am, I love, I mean, love is a weird word to say about the song, but I immensely enjoy this. Uh, I don't know. Like to me, it's like a, it's, it's a big cartoon in the middle of side one. I mean, how can yeah. you get mad at this? It's again, like it's when people say this is my least favorite Beatles song. It's not really. A, it's an interlude. Like it's it's a bridging track, and that's what its purpose is. And I think it works great. It gives it color. It's it's really fun. It sounds weird. The guitars are weird and springy sounding. I mean, it's come on. 
It's a blast. The comparison that my wife came up for this track is like if somebody's at a wine tasting party, like you have to have something to cleanse the palate. Yeah. Uh, between yeah. different things. And like this is kind of a, a palate cleanser. It sets you up uh, between <laughs> some of the bigger tracks. It's a very uh, goofy palate cleanser, but sure, if it yeah, works. Palate cleansers are supposed to be neutral, and this is not that. It's, it's not a perfect it's analogy. It's a grapeco <laughs> as a palate cleanser. As a spoiler, if I'm choosing between this and Honey Pie proper, guess what? I'm choosing this one. Yeah. There. Moved and seconded. <laughs> There's your segue. Ben, what about you? Yeah, I'm going to second Dan there. Um, I've always dug Wild Honey Pie. For me, it's the White Album and Microcosm. Yes. Uh, it's the guys at their creative peak, just trying things, not coming up with another She Loves You, but still creating something that didn't sound like anything anybody else had created before. It's not the best song on the White Album by far, but it's the most White Album song on the White Album. Yeah. Because... Uh, I'll take Paul following his creative muse and putting his all into it. Even if he's following that muse, it turns out into a dead end. As Dan said, uh, the other honey pie, to me at least, it's it's facile and a little entertaining, but it's so unambitious and so safe as to be insulting. And it's so lightweight that I'm surprised the record doesn't crumble into dust when you touch it. Wild honey pie, it's a spark of something at least. Yeah, I, I'm not going to bring any discord here i love wild honey pie <laughs> yeah. i found it baffling for most of my life but gradually came around and really what won me over is how boingy it is yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's great it's very charming well five for five wild honey pie has more unanimous consensus <laughs> than oh bloody oh blah, yeah, and it's positive <laughs> consensus there are two uh bits of trivia about this song that I particularly enjoy. One is that it wasn't going to be included on that because they just thought it was just kind of a mess and they were going to throw it away. But Patty Harrison, George's wife, liked it. So huh. they left it on the album mm. for her. The second one is I've heard a very, very funny interview clip from Paul McCartney where he's musing on uh, what John was talking about, about, you know, the possibility of cutting down the White Album to single album length and how good that might be. And he says... Yeah, we thought about that at the time, and maybe they have a point, and maybe some of them aren't super necessary, but it's the fucking Beatles White Album. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just one of the best things I've ever heard Paul McCartney say. Yeah, I mean, I don't remember clearly like what it was like listening to the White Album in high school, but you know, as someone who grew up on the Beatles on oldies radio, I can picture myself starting the White Album and then getting to this song and saying, just wait, what? And I think that's about all we can squeeze out of wild honey pie. Next up is the continuing story of Bungalow Bill. Bill. Hey, Bungalow Bill. Hey, Bungalow Bill. 
This is another song with lyrics that are inspired directly by events that occurred during the Beatles' stay in India. The titular Bungalow Bill is actually Richard A. Cook III, which is a perfect fancy rich boy name. (laughs) He was the son of an American socialite and fashion expert, Nancy Cook de Herrera. And at the time, she was a publicist for the Maharishi and was a liaison for the Beatles during their visit. One day, Rick, as he was casually known, uh, he and his mother set off on elephants and a few other members from the camp to go on a tiger hunt. And at one point, a tiger started to attack the elephants, prompting Rick to fatally shoot the tiger. He proudly posed for a photo with his trophy, but not everybody in the camp was impressed. John, who apparently already didn't really like Rick and his mother, thought they were kind of like spoiled rich brat Americans. Why um, would he think that? I don't know. He's so rude. <laughs> um, he saw it as a savage act and felt that Rick displayed an air of macho bravado that was incongruous with the purpose of the retreat. In John's words, he took a short break to go shoot a few poor tigers and then came back to commune with God. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm learning the stories of these songs for the first time for this episode. And I love the running gag in John Lennon's songs about people at the Maharishi's meditation camp who just didn't seem to understand the purpose of achieving enlightenment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but John ate his tiger burger along with everybody else. So he had no right to complain. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite Beatles revelations was learning that the little flamenco guitar run at the beginning of the song is actually from a Mellotron. It's literally somebody is holding down a key, playing a pre-recorded sample. I don't know why it's there. It's just another odd little quirk of the album. It's random and... I love it. I'm glad it's there. Don't care. <laughs> yeah. There's also Mellotron trombone, right? And mandolin, I think. Yeah, yeah. I, well, because I, it took me a while to get that the Mellotron was a keyboard that played samples because, like, in so many prog rock songs, it's mostly used to play strings, and mm-hmm. the sound is completely unmistakable. But, like, the Beatles always seem to use a wider range of samples. Like, you also have the flutes in Strawberry Fields Forever. Mm-hmm. I, I think the point the Beatles were trying to make in a lot of their Mellotron songs is, hey, Mellotrons are weird. Yeah. <laughs> and they're neat. <laughs> That's a good point. When I first started reading album reviews online, I was actually surprised to see how much heat this one gets for being a dumb novelty song. I've always heard an element of darkness here that mm-hmm. I think makes it too interesting to shrug off as filler. Uh, just hearing the word kill in a Beatles song is kind of jarring. Yeah. Um, there's also a, a this is a rare Beatles song that has female vocals in it. It's got Yoko and Ringo's then wife, Maureen. And I promise, I mean, this is a compliment, but Yoko's voice in particular adds an unsettling quality that I think gives the song an edge, especially the moment where she trades off with John. Yeah. The children asked him if to kill was not a sin. His mommy butted in. If looks could kill, it would have been us instead of him. All the children sing. Hey, Bungalow Bill. It's a funny song, and it's funny just how literal the story is. I mean, it's basically what happened. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But the song has this, like, kind of demented, creepy campfire sing-along vibe that's 
really only rivaled by the Mothers of Invention's Concentration Moon <laughs> of the same year. Concentration voice is it on the words us instead of him who goes down an octave underneath John and Yoko is that John dropping his voice down it's hard to tell I thought it was it's so creepy and unsettling I think Ringo sings in this too doesn't he he does he's in the backing vocals I mean and he's very noticeable here doing this wonderful Ringo vocal thing part of what's great I think is the untrained vocals here yeah. Like it, it gives it a certain quality that again, like it makes it kind of uneasy sounding. Yeah. That and how it, 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 the whole thing sounds so ominous. Yeah. And the first round of the chorus is in a major key, but then when it repeats, it slips into a minor and gets scary again. I like what you all pointing out that it's creepy because I'd <laughs> never thought of it that way. But but no, I, I think that's that's really interesting. This has never been one of my favorite songs. Uh, the lyrics and John's phrasing are a little on the nose. Like he might as well end each verse with, eh, eh, he's a coward, except when he's carrying a gun. They get it, right, mother? Yes, John. Uh, the song Saving Grace is a really catchy chorus. I mean, it is an instant campfire sing-along classic, as is Concentration Moon, even though I'm not a big Zappa fan. That's a really good one. Um this this is a tangent, but this the fact that this song is so catchy brings up one of my great frustrations in the Beatles story that Yoko, and I'm not saying she broke up the Beatles, she absolutely did not, and I'm not saying that John wasn't an adult capable of making his own decisions, he absolutely was, but that Yoko convinced one of the great pop songwriters of all time, someone who pretty much couldn't write a song that wouldn't be at home on Top 40 Radio, that to be a true artist is... I don't know, to record yourself snoring or to make a film of your own butt rather than doing the, the thing that he was so brilliant at. So we probably lost a few dozen classic songs from this period, but at least we have 40 minutes of him reading from the phone book or whatever he did in 1969 and 1970. Uh, I don't know because no one ever listens to it. Uh, for what it's worth, the flip side is that John convinced a brilliant conceptual artist that she'd be better off as a pop star. So maybe what I'm saying is they loved each other, and that's probably not the worst thing. Anyway, this isn't my favorite song, but it definitely sticks in your head, and that is not easy to pull off. John, what about you? Uh, so first with that uh, Mellotron sample, I've actually heard that in another context. It appears on really? an early King Crimson archive release. <laughs> uh, called the the album is called Epitaph. It's a collection of recordings from 1969. It, it appears at the start of an improv called Travel Bleary Capricorn. You're right. And I was shocked the first time I heard it. It's like, wait, isn't that the? And then I went back and listened uh, to this song. It's like, yeah, that's the one. And it was only years later that I found out that that was a Mellotron sample. It's like that makes an entirely too much sense. So was it just a stock loop that was on? I think so. That particular, it's interesting. I think it was the first key on the Mellotron. I think, yeah, sure I've seen a video of it where people just 
<laughs> like there it is. Yep. Anyway, with the sauna itself, I used to actively hate this one, and now I don't. Um, I think I may, I probably was, I might have been one of the people that you read who was slagging this off. Um, <laughs> it's entirely, it's entirely possible. I've come to really, really like the juxtaposition between the the silly happy chorus and the darkness of the verses because it used to be that I would just hear the the chorus and I'd say I'm out. Hmm. But like the, the 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 contrast between the the happy chorus and the darkness in the verses, like it almost feels like something of a, a bit from a variety show of like people like singing a happy song and then there's like th- then they like focus in on on the dark verses and maybe there's some kids who are sitting around and they're like starting to pick up on the story that's being told and like they get sadder and sadder or something like that as the song is going on and it. it it provides a really fascinating image in my head. So I, I would still probably slot this in the bottom third of the album, but this album has a lot that I really like and I would not slot it in the bottom two. Like I once would have. I, I always think I don't like this song when I'm not actually listening to it. <laughs> but then when I press play, I do a complete 180 on it. And uh, I also sometimes forget that it's a John song because like you guys were saying, Ringo's voice is so prominent in the chorus and that's primarily what I remember about it. Like they rounded up a whole crowd of people at Abbey Road to sing on that chorus, but Ringo is just unmistakable. He booms out from that entire mass. Yeah. And I actually really like Ringo as a vocalist. I mean, I don't want him on every song. He's definitely a sometimes food <laughs> as vocalists go. Yeah. Uh, but he has one of the most distinctive voices in rock music. You can tell it's Absolutely. him instantly. Such a friendly presence. Yeah, I love Ringo's voice. <laughs> yeah, you just want to hang out with him. I never caught him in the chorus, but now I feel like I'm not going to be able to to not hear him from now on. Yeah, so I'm sure you will. I'll, I'll listen. There are a lot of Beatles songs that really appeal to kids, and this is one of them. And this is the only one I can think of off the top of my head that I loved as a kid and still love as an adult. Is most of the ones that I loved when I was little, uh, like Oh Bloody Oh Blada, I kind of wore off as I got older. But with this one, as you, you know, as you grow up, you realize there's a lot more to it than the fun sing along chorus. And then it gets interesting and cool in a different way. Yeah. Like I said, my dad never really played the White Album when I was a kid, but he must have because I remember hearing this song at some point. It's definitely mm-hmm. like designed to stick in a kid's head. Yeah. You know, for a for a song about like murdering tigers. <laughs> <laughs> But kids don't listen to lyrics. <laughs> well, and you know what happens when tigers get murdered? George's guitar gently weeps. <laughs> <laughs> recording of a Beatles board meeting in I think 1969 where Paul talks about how George's two songs on Abbey Road are great just great but they hadn't been all that special up until Abbey Road and 
I'd ask what Paul was smoking, but that would be a dumb, dumb question. And besides, everything he answered it himself with his early solo single, It's Marijuana. I'm smoking marijuana. <laughs> Open parentheses, cough, cough, close parentheses. Like, <laughs> was he paying attention at all on Rubber Soul? If I needed someone to love, you're the one that I'd be thinking of. If I needed someone. Or Revolver. Especially here on the White Album, because While My Guitar Gently Weeps is a monster song, and it's one of three or four classic George songs just on this album that Paul McCartney helped create but somehow didn't pay attention to all of. I say three or four because I'm always on the fence about piggies. It's all right. George Harrison didn't just write a great song here. I believe he invented something completely new. Just a type of record we all take for granted now. Uh, But were there any other songs like this in 1968 or before 1968 that were big and anthemic, stately, regal, but also acoustically driven guitar rock that that took its time? And I'm happy to be corrected here uh, because maybe there was something that sounded like this before. Nice and white satin. (laughs) It's always the moody blues. (laughs) Also, were there any girl group songs from just a few years before this that might sound different, but that maybe have the same basic melody? (laughs) Just asking. (laughs) Paul's piano here, as much as I'm ragging on Paul uh, for not recognizing George's talent, uh, but Paul's piano and his bass give the track a lot of personality. Uh, The piano playing is fierce. And when you think about this song, a lot of what you think about is that piano, maybe because it, it starts off the song. The lead guitar on the song and the solo are played by special guest and worldwide goodwill ambassador Eric Clapton. There's a lot to rag on Eric Clapton about, for instance, the years 1971 through 2022, (laughs) and how once you get past Robert Johnson and B.B. King, his attitude towards black people seems to dip slightly. Uh, But it's worth remembering that between 1964 and 1970, he was a big deal for the right reasons, because he played hot, innovative lead guitar Eric's good friend George Harrison invited him to the Beatles session to add the guitar to While My Guitar Gently Weeps, and Eric does a masterful job playing memorable, wavering, even weeping lines in a thick guitar tone. Normally, I'm glad that the Beatles didn't cheapen their records by letting their friends do cheeky guest appearances. Hey, let's have Billy J. Kramer sing backing vocals, or maybe Keith Moon can sit in for Ringo just this once. 
because that's cheesy and more importantly because it forced the Beatles to stretch themselves to learn to do what those other artists did if they wanted the same sound on their records. But putting Eric's guitar on this song was a brilliant idea. It's probably the exception that proves the rule. All that said, this is George's song, and it's a brilliant song, slow and deliberate and meditative and clever. And it's George's sonic vision, and it's a brilliant sonic vision, big without being too loud or too fast. The lyrics are clever too and typically thoughtful. So put it all together, it's one of the better songs written and cut by anybody ever. I considered calling in a guest host for just this song, and then I thought, I was getting a little too conceptual. <laughs> Eric Clapton? Yeah, I have him on speed dial. Dan, what are your thoughts on the song? Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I like all of Georgia's songs leading up to this one, but this is the one that feels like the big leap forward. Um, yeah. Much as I like Taxman, as much as I've grown to love Within You Without You, this is in another league. And it's funny that like it feels like this is the point where the White Album gets serious. Like as good as yeah. you know, Dear Prudence was like this is like the real like showstopper so far. Uh, what I find interesting, side one is like a big like constantly moving sequence. Like there's all the songs kind of like fade into each other, smash into each other, and it all kind of like falls away by side two, which I thought was I don't know if there was any purpose to that or not. Um, because I like how this one begins coming out of the, you know, Bungalow Bill, where all of a sudden you have the the piercing piano notes, you yeah. know. Yeah. Uh, it's a really great shift. Yeah. I really I always loved yeah, it. Yeah, they just crash into each other. Mm-hmm. And for the Eric Clapton appearance, uh, here, here, I think this is your Leslie Speaker, by the way. I think that's him on a Leslie Speaker with the guitar. Mm. But the uh, thing I've started to wonder about is... Clapton was not credited on the album sleeve. So I'm curious how well known it was at the time that that was him playing on this. It's become like one of the most obvious bits of Beatle trivia in the decades since. And if my dad hadn't introduced this song to me as, hey, you know, that's Eric Clapton right there. Uh, <laughs> if I would have known that, because I mean, he really blends in. Like he doesn't come blasting in there with this like fuzzed out sunshine of your love guitar tone. <laughs> it really, he, he plays to the song. He really blends yeah. in with the song really well. The only credited um, Beatles guest musician is Billy Preston, right? On yeah. Don't Let Me Down? No, on um, Get Back. Oh, okay. Yeah, but on he's on single. both of those songs. Yeah, but he was credited on the sleeve for the single release. Okay. Yeah, getting my getting my credits straight. They didn't credit the uh, the piccolo trumpet guy in Penny Lane. <laughs> so no, they they listed some of the side players on some albums, but in terms of getting like billing with the Beatles, it was billing right, Preston. like the auxiliary players. Yeah, yeah, like the featured credit. Yeah. 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 And it, Dan, I think you're right. I don't think they kept it a secret, particularly that that was Clapton, but it wasn't advertised either. Well, and I know like there was always the legal issue of if you're assigned to a record label oh, yeah. that you can't always get your name on a. There's there was all sorts of like you use pseudonyms and stuff to get around that. But uh, I, don't know, I, was, I just was always curious how that got around to like the basic hmm. record buying public. But uh, yeah, I really, I don't even know what to say about the song, really. It's just such an obvious masterpiece that <laughs> I don't know what to add to what Ben said. John, what about you? You know, I don't know what my favorite uh, song on this album is necessarily, but I do know that uh, While My Guitar Gently Weeps would be one of the first five or six that I would think of. I've cooled on Eric Clapton a little bit uh, since I first heard this album. 
uh, but not on the early period that much. Like I still really like him uh, through you know 1971. I like him as a live performer thereafter, and I think that he he he's the perfect extension of of George's muse uh, here. But of course, he is not the best soloist for this song. The best performance of this, of course, is the one that happened after George had died at the Rock and Roll Hall of I Fame was just induction. I about that. And yeah. who did they give the main solo to at the end? But Prince. Ooh. And it's the greatest clip you will ever watch. <laughs> Yeah, I love I love this song, but I do also find that a lot of times, if I'm just in the mood for it playing, I will just go fire up that clip and and watch Prince just burn the house down with it. <laughs> Rich, what about you? <sighs> oh no, <laughs> we got one. <laughs> I don't like this song. Oh no. <laughs> or to be more specific, it sounds fine on the album, and I respect how much work George Harrison put into it. It's quite a creation, but I'm just so over it as like this enduring sad boy guitar anthem. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's a piece of crap like yesterday, right? <laughs> I hate hearing it on the radio. I hate hearing it at restaurants that play an endless rotation of dad rock. I'm just fed up with it. You just said sad boy guitar anthem about while well, my guitar gently weeps. Yeah. <laughs> it's about a guitar. So. I think part of it, I mean, I'm willing to admit that a lot of it is just me. I think part of it is just my personality. Like when I'm feeling sad, I don't look for music that commiserates with how I'm feeling. I find like the brightest, sunniest dance music I can think of and blast it on headphones. So if there was like a Kylie Minogue cover of this, I'm sure I would love it. <laughs> for what it's worth, Rich, I would have been shocked if you liked this one, actually. It, it's, I think I used to like it, but it's something that just yeah. slowly crept up on me. Like I, I, I was I was at a restaurant with my wife and it came on like, it came on speakers and I was just like, I don't like this. I don't like this song. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> uh, but like, uh, yeah, so what I'm saying is Wild Honey Pie can stay on the album but while my guitar gently weeps, I'm voting you off. And that's why the White <laughs> Album is so yeah, much fun to talk about. Yeah, that's fair. That's funny. I, I never really hear this one in the wild, actually. I never hear it on no, the radio. I oh, I hear it all the time. I've heard this on the radio so much. I think I, I think it might just be oversaturation. I don't know. I'm not trying to troll all of you. I've just never cared for this one. I'm sorry. You go to better restaurants than I do, I guess. <laughs> we have our Tempest Fugit. <gasps> Well, I'll take us out on a positive note because I love this. I think it's fantastic. And there's another version from after George had died at the concert for George, the tribute that Eric Clapton helped organize. And Clapton sings lead, but Ringo and Paul are also there on drums and piano, respectively. And it's enormous. There's like 75 people on that stage and around 50 of them are playing guitars and it's it's a wonderful performance. So yeah, we'll we'll have lots of clips for you and Rich, you don't have to watch them. <laughs> well, I'll trade in my haterade for a sample, actually, because this was sampled by the Wu-Tang Clan on their song The Heart Gently Weeps, featuring Erica Badu on vocals and John Fruciante on guitar. And Rizza actually cleared the sample, and as you can expect, it cost a lot of money. <laughs> you smile Oh, 
2019's basin A raisin in the sun was amazing The joint on the dresser, a gauge went on Jumped up, fish tank, it fell When they stuck, they shot a cousin LaVon, Neo the buck, Willie was awful Yeah, not my favorite thing that Wu-Tang Clan ever did But then again, it's based on a terrible Beatles song so. <laughs> Okay, that <laughs> was trolling <laughs> Yeah, it was <laughs> They did get to use this in uh, the movie with Nell and I, and I'm guessing it's because George Harrison produced it. So that's how you can afford a Beatles song in your movie. <laughs> Seems like a safe bet. <laughs> yeah. Great movie. Yeah. All right. Next up, this is the last song for this section of the episode, and it's a good one to end on. This is Happiness is a Warm Gun. She's not a girl who misses much. Oh yeah She's well acquainted with the touch of the velvet hand Like a lizard on a windowpane The man in the crowd with the multicolored mirrors on his hobnail boots Lying with his eyes while his hands are busy working overtime a soap impression of his wife, which he ate and donated to the National Trust. This song is terrible. <laughs> no, I wouldn't do that to you guys, at least more than once. <laughs> Happiness is a Warm Gun is my favorite song on the White Album, and apparently all four Beatles agree with me, so I'm in good company. So the title comes from a headline in the magazine American Rifleman, which John Lennon found lying around the studio in Abbey Road, and he thought it was a, quote, fantastic, insane thing to say, end quote. <laughs> Luckily, the article was about a niche hobby within American culture that never grew into a larger political movement. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised that the tiger hunter didn't have it with him in India. <laughs> yeah, how does that end up in Abbey Road Studios? That's just right? weird. I don't know. <laughs> Eh, George Martin, you know who he was. <laughs> so the song is a mini suite that unfolds over several distinct sections, and the opening section is a series of surreal images that Lennon and Apple Records publicist Derek Taylor strung together while dropping acid. So the man in the crowd with the multicolored mirrors on his hobnail boots refers to a man in Manchester who was arrested for going to football matches while wearing mirrors on his shoes so he could look up women's skirts. Oh He's a psychedelic pervert, though. And multicolored. <laughs> and speaking of gross behavior, donating what you ate to the National Trust is basically a euphemism for crapping on public land, which apparently oh, happened rather frequently in Merseyside when you were just taking a walk. Oh, boy. So these lyrics may sound like stone nonsense, and they kind of are, but when you unpack them, they paint a pretty vivid and rather unpleasant picture of England at a particular place in time. So after the acid trip ends, the second and third sections of the song hit in rapid succession. I need a fix cause I'm going down Down to the bits that I left uptown I need a fix cause I'm going down Mother Superior jump the gun Mother Superior jump the gun so the lyric, I need a fix because I'm going down, got the song banned on the radio because of its rather direct reference to shooting heroin. And John Lennon later denied that this was the case, but John Lennon said a lot of things that varied a lot depending on his state of mind and his mood when he was talking to an interviewer. So Mother Superior was one of Lennon's nicknames for Yoko Ono. So as for the line, Mother Superior jumped the gun, well, you figure it out. <laughs> Finally, the song concludes with the doo-wop-styled title section featuring some mighty vocal work from John Lennon. Happiness 
So this section kind of sounds like a tossed off joke, accepting that mighty vocal performance that we just heard right there. But as we learned during Obladi, Oblada, nothing about the White Album was actually tossed off. So this section shifts between 2-4, 3-4, and 4-4 time, and the song as a whole took 15 hours and 95 takes before the band was satisfied. But this time it was okay because John did it, not Paul. (laughs) (laughs) So I love this song because it feels like a little sneak preview of the span of John Lennon's solo career. Because the first few sections feel like the style he would adopt on the Plastic Ono Band and Imagine albums. And then the doo-wop section kind of brings to mind the more soulful style of music he would veer toward on singles like Whatever Gets You Through the Night, Women, and especially Just Like Starting Over. Yeah. And as a suite, the song makes absolutely no sense and all the sense in the world at the same time. Like, if that final section were a standalone track, I mean, despite John Lennon's vocal performance there, it would it would honestly be in the running for my least favorite song on the album. But coming after the first three sections, it sounds just joyous and cathartic. And I, I have no idea what John Lennon was on about with this song, but it's a stunning achievement, almost like the White Album in Microcosm. Yeah, on, on another excellent Beatles podcast I'll reference called Screw It, we're just going to talk about mm-hmm. the Beatles, which at least Great is show. a big influence so on on how I approach this show. Katie Plattner, one of the hosts, asked once about Paul McCartney, are all his songs three songs? And she was <laughs> right. That's McCartney's jam, and he's great at it. But here's John Lennon kind of doing it first in 1968. Um, to add to what Rich said, because I liked uh, what he said about the song – the, the three songs in Happiness is a Warm Gun, they don't reprise, they don't overlap, they don't work as counterpoint with each other, but they also don't feel unnatural next to each other. The second part makes sense coming out of the first part. The third part makes sense coming out of the second part. All three parts are minor key, dark, disturbing, even a little kludgy and ugly, but always in a compelling way. And Lennon's vocal, which we've been talking about on that last section, is just so forceful. You got this classic rock and roll snarl in an unexpected place. So this is another archetypal White Album song. You wouldn't expect it or even want to hear it while Cirque du Soleil performers are bouncing and roller skating around a Las Vegas stage. Great show, by the way. But you also (laughs) wouldn't want the Beatles canon to exist without it. Here, here. It's just such a weird concoction that shouldn't work, but winds up being maybe the best song of the album. Mm. Uh, Yeah, they really perfected the art of just grafting songs together and just willing them to make sense. Uh, It's funny, I, I always kind of think of uh uh while Megatar gently weeps as being the end of side one it's because it's like this big grand statement yeah. and then this comes it's like oh god yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> like it ends on this note <laughs> which is perfect because again the, the yeah. finale it builds like the whole side is building to this big uh apex with the with the doo-wop the high note and everything but it's just such a weird song and the lyrics are so weird. And like how Rich pointed out, like the lyrics actually mean something. And the more you know what the lyrics actually mean, 
like the better they are because it's not just you know hippie nonsense like you said but they're not just watching the eel there's real stuff going on <laughs> but, what's that ween oh <laughs> <laughs> oh wow i missed a ween reference <laughs> from me i got it <laughs> but i mean but yeah it's it's Boy, it's not my favorite on the album, but it is the top three-ish, for sure. John, please don't do what Rich did. I love this song. <laughs> Though I have to know that as recently as maybe like three years ago, I, I did think that this was the opener of Side 2. Um, yeah. Because I don't It ha- sounds like it should be. It should. It, it, I just assume just because in terms of the album flow, but no, that's that's not the case. Um, but whatever, like it's it's a perfect way to follow the song. Either way, and again, I, you know, all my music is is CDs and digital. It doesn't really matter to me. Um, I love how scuzzy the guitar sounds um, going into the second section, and you know, I, I love how this song, especially in the in the first half, is is so scuzzy and dirty, and then by the end, like it's just all in on being just. A, a bunch of sex euphemisms, but like, like cloaked in like these big, happy uh, melodies of all sorts. It's like the, I don't know. It's like the porno theater version of good vibrations or something. Like it's, <laughs> it's inc- wow. That brings a whole new light to that title. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Like once I saw it, I couldn't unsee it. Um, it's like, Oh, of course it's John Lennon. That's, that's what this is. Um, yeah, this is a fantastic one. This is another one that, again, would be on my short list of ones that I would consider naming my favorite. Yeah, the second half, the, the, the second part with the the scuzzy guitar, it sounds like the song is like stumbling around drunk around yes. some dark, <laughs> seedy section yeah. of London. What is, and it's yeah. trying to talk to you, but when it, but it's like it doesn't, <laughs> yeah. it, it has to clear its throat. It's like, I need a fix. And it's like, <clears throat> I need a fix. And I'm going, <laughs> <laughs> This was one that it took me a long time to come around to. I didn't really like it as a kid because I didn't get it. And now I'm an adult and I can tell that it's amazing. And the part at the end, uh, the the bang, bang, shoot, shoot section, what I what it sounds like to me, and I don't know if this is how they did it, is it, is that Lennon did the vocal first, just in kind of a freestyle singing whatever he felt in his heart. And they constructed the instrumental track around that because the the time signature is so weird and it changes a lot. And I feel like they were just, it's like the soft machine trying to keep up with Sid Barrett. Oh, yes. (laughs) That's a great comparison. (laughs) (laughs) They're they're just doing their best to make some sort of a structure around that very loose vocal performance. And once again, Lennon didn't like his voice. That was why it's always double tracked on the early Beatles recordings because he thought he wasn't good enough and he wanted he always wanted it manipulated. And it just, I mean, come on, this is incredible. What's interesting about the the shifting time signatures is I, I don't think John knew like technically what he was doing. Oh, no. no, not at all. I think, and the thing is just how this how he worked because like like Good Morning, Good Morning has a weird time signature. I think it's just yeah. what came out of him and it's interesting that that's yeah. just and that was his style in general here's this uh, here's how i am expressing myself you figure out how to hmm. put a structure bar- around it all right after that incredible album side it is time for everybody to take a quick break go get a snack console your guitar let your gun cool off and we will be back momentarily with side two end of part one intermission 
End of intermission. Part two. We are back from intermission and we have had a shift change. So Amanda is still here, but she's an official commentator now. We've promoted her. And we've kicked Dan and Ben out of the band for the time being. And in their place is Phil Maddox. Welcome to the panel, Phil. Yeah, thanks for having me. So before we get going on side two of The Beatles, also known colloquially as The White Album. So Amanda and Phil, I want to hear all about your histories with The Beatles and especially The White Album. So Amanda, why don't you start? Okay. Uh, well, I'm I'm going to go broad for this one because I kind of have to in order to give my personal Beatles history in, you know, in any sort of context because they take up so much space. From the second I was born, I have had music coming at me from all directions. I come from a very musical family on both sides, and my life was just saturated with music right from the beginning, and I loved it, and I was an active, attentive listener for most of it. Almost all of my earliest memories are attached to whatever song happened to be playing at the time. And I was well into my teens before I realized that not every kid's favorite way to spend a Saturday afternoon was to lie on the floor in front of the stereo following along with lyric sheets to album after album. (laughs) my favorite thing to do. (laughs) I did that with I Am The Walrus over and over again. And the reason I am saying all this is so that you'll all understand how significant it is that the Beatles overshadowed all of that. I heard their songs constantly. My dad was the biggest Beatles fan I've ever personally known. And my mom loves them too. And they brought up me and my siblings to be Beatles fans. And that has kind of backfired on occasion. Uh, My brother and I once had a bitter argument over who composed the guitar solo in While My Guitar Gently Weeps until our mom had to tell us to knock it off because we were ruining Christmas. (laughs) We were in our 20s at the time. It was Ted Nugent, right? Yes. That was what we settled on, I think. And as kids, the White Album was what we heard the most by far. These are the first Beatles songs I consciously remember hearing, and they're essentially embedded in my DNA by now. I have detailed personal anecdotes connected to almost every song on this album and almost every other Beatles song for that matter, some of which I might tell, most of which I won't. But I'm not exaggerating when I say the Beatles in general and this album specifically are foundational to my entire personality. When somebody asks me who's my favorite band, I don't say the Beatles, but that's just because it's so obvious. Of course, the Beatles are my favorite. They're the beginning of absolutely everything. I have an intense emotional connection to this music. And the, the incredible thing about the Beatles is that I am in no way unique in that. I'm not even unusual. There are literally millions of people who have similar stories to mine and who also have really serious emotional connections to the Beatles music that are just as deep as mine or even deeper. These songs bring me tremendous joy. And I love knowing that so many other people also experience that same joy when they hear Beatles songs. So I am stoked to talk about all this in exhaustive detail with my friends. Okay, Phil, top that. Tell me about the Beatles, the White Album, and Phil Maddox. (laughs) All right. Much like Amanda, like, my parents liked the Beatles, but they didn't, like, love the Beatles. Like, my dad is, like, notoriously kind of down on Paul McCartney. And as far as I recall, the only Beatles album I remember us having a vinyl copy of when I was a kid uh, was the White Album. But that said, it's one of the four vinyl albums that I played obsessively when I was a kid. Uh, The four albums I played for the record were The White Album, the Stop Making Sense soundtrack, On the Threshold of a Dream, 
and the self-titled Doors album. Woo. Woo. That's fine. (laughs) I listened to all of those albums (laughs) so much. But I heard a lot of other Beatles stuff just, you know, as part of the background of life because those songs were inescapable. And I would frequently, like, take my allowance and, like, go down to the local Roses department store and buy whatever Beatles albums I didn't already have on cassette. Ooh. And I'm just wondering, those cassettes are probably still around my parents' house somewhere. But growing up, like, the album that certainly stuck with me the most was the White Album, just because it was one of those albums that just... I just foundationally loved as a kid. Mm-hmm. Like I had a Walkman and I taped the white album onto a 90 minute cassette tape with the first album on side one and the other album on side two. And I listened to that like scratchy, like taped off a of vinyl <laughs> tape constantly. And I still just have a special place in my heart for the white album. Not as much as Amanda, I think, because like, Again, like if you try to tell me like what band do you associate with your childhood and like listening to over and over again? For me, it's the Moody Blues mm. and the Starland Vocal Band. And of course, they suck. <laughs> I was setting you up for that, John. That's the beauty of tattoos. You'll never regret them. I also just one little bit of trivia. My dad had a sticker on his guitar case that said happiness is a warm gun. And it, it's a very good thing I knew what that was a reference to or it would have been pretty alarming. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and I have just a real quick note that I forgot to say in part one uh, about, you know, the way we're handling this episode. We're going to be serving up some trivia and recording information and whatnot occasionally because we just can't help ourselves. I'm mostly speaking for myself there. But that's not really the main purpose of these episodes. We're, we're here to talk about how much we love these songs. There mm-hmm. are lots and lots of other places you can go for the straight facts, but you can only get the Discord and Rhyme Angle right here. As long as we bring up the most important fact, which is, of course, that Paul McCartney died sometime around the time this album came out. And there's a fake Paul McCartney on this album. Absolutely. So who wants to listen to the Beatles? Me, me, I do. Yay. All right. Sure. Side two of the White Album opens with Martha, my dear. Martha, my dear, though I spend my days in conversation, please remember me, Martha, my love. Don't forget me, Martha, my dear. My Dear, a Paul McCartney track that is at least theoretically about his dog, is a track that when I've seen people talk about the White Album, I see dismissed quite frequently as one of the weaker tracks on the White Album. Boo! Crazy talk. I absolutely could not disagree more strongly. 
to me, there are very few, if any, songs that make a stronger case for the pop genius of Paul McCartney. Yup. This song has at least three completely different melodies, and it shifts between them constantly, starting as a music hall-style piano piece, and then moving into a brief, harder-rocking midsection, shifting into an incredibly memorable horn-driven reprise of the main melody. It's the kind of song that, in the hands of a lesser artist, would be an absolute mess, but McCartney is so good at this kind of piece that the whole thing feels incredibly natural. And it doesn't hurt, of course, that this song has, to me at least, some of the most memorable melodies that McCartney ever wrote. Mm -hmm. This song also really reflects just how fractured the Beatles were at this point, as Paul McCartney played nearly everything on this track. There's a very brief bit of guitar from George Harrison, and the strings and horns were played by session players, but everything else is Paul McCartney. And it really kind of feels like a more fleshed out version of the kind of stuff that he would put on his self-titled debut album and Ram. So, mm-hmm. Amanda, you had to hold back on side one, but now you're on yeah. the panel. So let loose. What do you think of Martha, my dear? I love this song so much. And just for the record, it's not I don't think he ever said it was actually about his dog. It just has the same name. He had a sheepdog called Martha at the time who you can find lots of pictures of, on, of online. She looks like a very good girl. But this is absolutely top drawer Paul's granny music. And like Phil said, you know, all the evidence suggests this was a one man McCartney special aside from the orchestration. And I was a little bit surprised by that because I was never sure whether it was him playing the piano or not. You know, he's a perfectly good piano player, but this is a little bit more flashy than you usually hear from him. It's, It's a fairly complicated ragtime rhythm. And he does it really well. Apparently, the advice was to have George Martin do it. But Paul just carried on with his bad self and good for him. It, my my favorite thing about this is how it is very subtly weird. The time signature, for one, is completely bizarre. There are extra beats in a lot of places where you don't expect them. So the song has this terrific sense of hesitation in between the musical phrases. And I looked up sheet music to see if I could figure out just what's going on. And as far as I can tell, nobody really knows. I found various combinations of 2-2, 3-2, 4-4, and 5-4, but there would be a lot of ways to notate this and have it come out sounding right. But the thing is, it all sounds so organic that I might not have even noticed all of the extra beats if it weren't for the hand claps in the instrumental section. We heard that toward the end of the clip. Uh, Around the time of that hesitation in between the phrases, the hand claps stay on every other beat, but they change from hitting on 2 and 4 to 1 and 3. The hand claps haven't changed, but the music around them has, and it's absolutely brilliant. And I suspect that, as usual, McCartney was just running on instinct. He was not planning out, you know, how can I change these time signatures every other measure? And somebody later on had to try to transcribe this insane timing into something other people might be able to replicate. But you know what? The joke's on them because there is only one Paul McCartney. Yeah, I never noticed what a labyrinth of a song this was until you pointed that out, Amanda. Like, oh, yeah? I mean, there's so much like drive and forward momentum to it. It sounds so natural. Like, I, I would never have guessed that it was as complex as it is. Yeah, it, it's bananas, but it's so smooth that you don't pick up on that necessarily. And again, people often dismiss this song because I think there's kind of a critical bias 
to dismiss like the kind of quote unquote lightweight McCartney songs mm-hmm. in favor of the more serious quote unquote John Lennon songs. I think people are moving past that. Yeah, yeah. they are Thank finally God. doing that. It, we talked about that in the Ram episode too, because a lot of a lot of times Paul, when he got weird, he was just very subtly bonkers. To the point where it just sounded wrong, I think. But in hindsight, it's easier to tell how smart he really was. So if you were to ask me, like, what does a Paul McCartney song sound like? And what my first instinct would be would be Penny Lane, probably. But Mm. this is either neck and neck with that one or a very, very close second. Like, Like, it's definitely one of the songs that immediately pops to mind when I think of just Paul McCartney as a concept. And I actually have a question about this one, about the like kind of the genre, so to speak. And I think John might be the best person here to answer this. John, Uh does this does this count as broke pop? Kind of. I would put it somewhere in the middle of Baroque pop and music hall. Yeah, I would I would say closer to music hall. Okay, yeah, the music hall is a good way of putting it. Yeah, same. Yeah, well, because I I'm, I'm, I guess in terms of like I've seen it described as Baroque pop before, and I guess like uh, uh, I'm not terribly well schooled in Baroque music or music theory either, so I can't tell you whether this has any actual influence from that period of classical music. But like the thing is, like Baroque music, it, the the Baroque aspects to Baroque pop are superficial. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, like I I think it's mostly. It, just music pop music that occasionally uses a harpsichord and has kind of a, a a dainty delicate feel that is what i was gonna say like it either has a harpsichord or that there's a kind of like classical elegance and spareness to the instrumentation yeah. like walk away yeah. renee by the left bank yeah. is one of the classic baroque pop songs Just walk away, Yeah, and this one, I think the only thing Baroque about it would be the instrumentation. Okay, well, whether or not the song is Baroque, like this is this is a real like Swiss watch of a song. It feels like mm-hmm. Paul could just like wind it up and the arrangement would just chug on without him. It's it's so good. <laughs> it's wonderful. Uh, but John, what do you think of it? So just laying my cards on the table uh, generally with this batch of songs. I, I was thinking about this earlier today. And I think that, you know, not only is side two of the White Album uh, my favorite side on the album. I couldn't put this on the short list of my favorite sides of music. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's yeah, way near the top. And one of the things that's interesting to me about this is um, I, if I had to pick in my mind is, is the white album more of a McCartney album or a Lennon album? I think instinctually I would slightly tip it more towards Lennon on the whole, but this is a McCartney side like he yeah. has five of the the tracks on this side and it's really a, a broad look at all the different uh, approaches or, or, or a very good representative sample of the different uh, types of things that he could do. He does not repeat himself really at all. And he, and all of them are, are great in their own way. I mean, in, in terms of the, the tracks as a whole on this side, I'd say that the, the two I end up picking might actually be my least favorite on the side. And I still think they're really good. Um, but yeah, big fan of this side generally. Martha, my dear, is a is a great kickoff. Um, I have to confess, for a very long time, I actually thought it was uh, track two on this side because forever and ever, I thought that this side started with "Happiness Is a Warm Gun" because I never had it on vinyl. Um, but at the same time, I like the idea that just like the first side, uh, this is bracketed by uh, a McCartney song at the start and a Lennon song at the end. 
Um, and yeah, I just like the really, really upbeat, cheery way to be able to jump into the side after, you know, the the, the really dreary scuzziness, the wonderful dreary scuzziness of happiness is a warm gun to close mm-hmm. the the first side. So yeah, mm-hmm. big fan of the song, but uh, but also just has it functions in in the course of the album, how it sets up the side. It's it's fantastic. Yeah, the sequencing on this whole album is out of this yeah. world good. Yep. And before we move on, I also feel contractually obligated to bring up that XTC's psychedelic alter egos, the Dukes of Stratosphere, performed a number of Beatles pastiches on their collection Chips from the Chocolate Fireball. And uh, the song Brainiac's Daughter in particular feels like an homage to Martha, my dear. Okay, let's move on to the next song. The next track is something that we often feel while recording these episodes because we record at night. It's called I'm So Tired. I'm so tired I haven't slept a wink I'm so tired My mind is on the blink I wonder should I get up And fix myself a drink Side one, we mentioned the great Beatles podcast, Screw It, we're going to talk about the Beatles. And one of my favorite moments of that show is when one of the panelists, I think it was Joel Spence, uh, referred to the Beatles as, quote, the three laziest men in the world and their overbearing bass player. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm not enough of a Beatles scholar to judge the veracity of this statement, but I like that John Lennon wrote two songs about sleep for the Beatles. I'm only sleeping and I'm so tired, which is basically I'm only not sleeping. And he also wrote, how do you sleep? His song directed at Paul McCartney, you know, for the crime of writing songs like yesterday. That was more of a genuine inquiry than an accusation, as it turns out. So I'm So Tired is the latest in the running White Album theme of case studies about meditation at the Maharishi's retreat. And the subject of this case study is John Lennon himself. So Lennon's stay in Rishikesh was the first time in ages that he'd abstained from drinking or drugs. And when you couple that with extensive meditation, he found his thoughts so focused that it gave him insomnia. This was compounded by feelings of missing Yoko Ono, whom he had met by this point, uh, but he hadn't actually gotten together with her yet because he was still married to Cynthia Lennon. So, and it's Yoko he's referring to with the line, my mind is set on you. He had his mind set on her, as George Harrison would later say. (laughs) So the most memorable line in this song is probably when Lennon seemingly randomly chooses to lash out at late 16th century English statesman Sir Walter Raleigh with the line, although I'm so tired, I'll have another cigarette. And curse Sir Walter Raleigh, he was such a stupid git. Although I'm so tired, 
cigarette and cursed the Walter Raleigh. He was such a stupid git. So among Sir Walter Raleigh's numerous accomplishments was bringing the first tobacco leaves to England from Virginia and thus popularizing tobacco in the British Isles. So Lennon is personally lashing out at the source of his cigarette addiction. He really wanted a cigarette and he was going straight to the source for blaming why. Is that why? I never knew. I always just figured he pulled a name out of a hat. See, I knew this because I lived in, I grew up in Virginia and we know (laughs) our Walter Raleigh in Virginia. (laughs) He also helped uh, defeat the Spanish Armada. So good for him. But I love this line because it resembles the kinds of like twisted logic and strange mental pathways your brain goes down when you're when you've been tossing and turning for hours without a wink and just want some sleep. Like I can imagine him just like uh, thinking like, oh, I need a cigarette. Why do I want a cigarette? What's the historical reason I want a cigarette? I hate that person. (laughs) But John, what do you think of this one? Love it. Always loved it. Yeah. Uh, You said you love side two. I I figure it's always going to be love it. huh? There's going to be a theme here. It's got to be like it, love it or got to have it. Exactly. When I first got this album uh, back in my freshman year of college, when I was finally getting into the Beatles, uh, this was definitely like one of the big highlights early on. Because, you know, you know, when you're when when you're a college student, the the concerns of sleep are going to be one of those things that's constantly on your mind. It's like, oh, someone who really, really gets it. And, you know, then I heard uh, Revolver with I'm Only Sleeping. It's like, oh, I get John Lennon. This is wonderful. Um, yeah, it, it's fantastic. Like they're just the, uh, the swinging back and forth between the, the more, uh, somewhat subdued to, to the more angry, but always with the same baseline intensity is really, really fascinating to me. And yeah, there, I mean, there's a lot of other things I can say, but I'm going to assume that you guys are going to have your own thing. So I don't want to, uh, filibuster the floor. So take it away. For me, this is actually one of the comparatively lesser songs on the album, but that doesn't mean it's not great. This is just entirely personal preference. And my favorite part in it is the drumming in the you'd say I'm putting you on part. Yep. And then the second time around when John screams, I'm going insane. You know I can't sleep. I can't stop praying. You know three weeks. I'm going insane. You know I give you everything I've got for little because I am I am very terrible at sleeping myself. And I have often had this song running through my head when I'm still awake at 2 a.m. And the other another really great thing about the Wyatt album in general is John Lennon was a fantastic rock vocalist. And I feel like his voice was at its most versatile around yes. this time. Because he's got several different vocal performances, like sometimes within the same song. And this one is, I mean, the way the intensity builds and then drops back down again. Oh, it's so good. To me, this might be the quintessential White Album track Mm. because it's barely a song. It's verse, chorus, verse, chorus, stops dead. Yeah, that's the whole thing. Yeah, it's it's two minutes long and it's two builds like that's it. There's nothing else to it. So just taken on its own as a song, it is barely a song it's really cool but it's missing a lot of the elements that make a normal song but it works so well as part of the white album coming in after martha my dear and then leading right into blackbird it's just a really cool like chunk of lenin's angst coming through that you know then just continues on to the rest of the album it's the kind of track like I really never get the desire to like, I'm going to throw I'm so tired onto this mix CD. 
it's the kind of track that really just works wonderfully as part of the White Album. And as such, even if it's not a fully formed song, even, I just absolutely love it. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like if you had like the more the more of the formal parts that you're quote unquote supposed to have, it it wouldn't improve it. No, it would. No, it would. It, it would it. wreck the vibe. It's it. Yeah, it's it's just a groove. It's a feel. It's the oh god, I'm still awake. Like that's a, an aspect to it. You don't want to have all sorts of intricacies built into that. Right. But it would also like if you put this like I don't know, slap this onto I guess like side two of Magical Mystery Tour. <laughs> it doesn't feel like a complete song. Right. It works just because it's great. And it works so well in the context of everything else. Like you couldn't flesh it out. Yeah. But you also can't just make it completely stand on its own. So they did the absolutely perfect thing with it, which was slapping it right here. Yeah. And I have a couple more things about this song. So first off, this song fits into the whole Paul is dead mythos uh, because of a bit at the end of the song. Uh, so Lennon does some muttering as it's fading out. Give you everything I've got for me. So what he's saying apparently is Monsieur, 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 how about another one? And some people played it backwards and heard him saying, Paul is dead, man. Miss him, miss him, miss him. (laughs) And you know why he did that is because Paul is totally dead. He's clearly indicating that at the end of the song. And you probably didn't know that because the Beatles have been lying to us for almost 60 years. But everybody, keep an eye on your Patreon bonus feeds because Mike and I are about to release a bonus episode that is going to blow this whole thing wide open. See, I I had always heard this backwards part as Satan eats cheese whiz. does and like most Beatles songs this has been covered a whole bunch of times and I have a couple to play so the first one is I'm playing the first one just because it's such a stark contrast with John Lennon's it's by a mostly forgotten Laurel Canyon singer songwriter named Susan Carter and she makes the song sound like it comes from someone who like regularly gets a good night's sleep and is like ready to bounce around in the sunshine (laughs) but I'm so tired oh you are not (laughs) I don't know what to do I don't think they understand the song. You know, I'm going insane. I give you everything I got for a little piece of mine. Ooh. Wow. Let me tell you how I used to be so tired. Wow. And on the other end of the spectrum, the second one I have is from Alex Chilton, who sounds like he hasn't slept in months. I'm so tired. I haven't slept a wink. I'm so my mind is on a bling I wonder should I get up and fix myself a drink no I'm so tired boy the post uh, big star career of Alex Chilton was something 
<laughs> that was a gorgeous mess. I liked it. Well, I, I kind of like the second one because Alex Chilton is basically sticking to the same sound from like Third Sister Lovers by Big Star. Oh, yes. And that had, a, that had a huge influence on like lo-fi and indie rock. And this cover kind of brings home the fact that like John Lennon was part of that lineage. So it turns out the Beatles were influential. Who to thunk it? You don't say. All right. Well, let's move on from a song about someone who really, really needs some coffee to a song you've probably heard in many a coffee shop. This is McCartney with Blackbird. Blackbird singing in the dead of night. Take these broken wings and learn to fly all your life. You were only waiting for this moment to arise Blackbird singing in the dead of night Take these sunken eyes and learn to see All your life You were only waiting for this moment to be free Blackbird fly Blackbird fly Into the line of a dark black night What a lovely little song this is. This is another one that is entirely Paul. It's just his voice, occasionally double-tracked, his guitar, and either a metronome or his foot tapping. Reports vary on that, but it might be both. The only sound that he did not personally make is the bird song in the second verse. I have occasionally heard claims that Paul recorded that himself just outside the studio, but that is ludicrous. I mean, I've been to Abbey Road. It's a very busy street. Nobody is recording bird songs there, and that's not what happened at all. It came out of the sound effects cupboard. But what they did do is they managed to fit it in, and I don't know what other manipulation there would have been to like maybe the speed or the pitch or whatever, but it makes, it, it ends up being a really perfect little counter melody in the second part. Blackbird singing in the dead of night Take these broken wings and learn to fly all your life. The guitar arrangement was inspired by Bach's Beret in E minor, which is a piece we talked about before in Phil's Jethro Tall episode. around with it a little bit and rearranged it into its relative major key of G. And all that means is it has the same key signature. There's one sharp, but the scale starts on G rather than E and it makes the intervals change a little bit. And then the vocal melody he put on top of that is absolutely gorgeous and beautifully sung because, I mean, Paul McCartney is a very good songwriter. I don't know if you knew that. What? There are a couple possible interpretations of the song. The first one is entirely literal. McCartney said early on that he heard a blackbird singing in India and wrote a song about it. And he has also said that it's about the civil rights struggle in the U.S. and blackbird is meant to be a metaphor for a black woman. And that feels maybe a little retconned to me, but it works. 
Now, this song was a great source of confusion for me as a young child because the Mr. Mr. song Broken Wings came out when I was four <laughs> and also includes the line, take these broken wings and learn to fly. Take these broken wings and learn to fly again, learn to live so free. And I, I didn't have any sense of time yet. I didn't know that Blackbird had come out long before and was in no way related to Broken Wings. And I got very upset that everybody wanted these poor birds to fly on their broken wings. <laughs> Does this song have any connection to Kyrie? Oh, I bet that one's about how Paul is dead. It probably is. Yeah. So, Phil, what say you about Blackbird? Oh, it's a lovely, lovely little song that I do not think could really be improved because I've heard a lot of people try to improve it. Like, mm-hmm. I know Crosby, Stills and Nash recorded it for their debut album and they cut it. And it was probably a good thing they cut it because even though their version is nice, I mean, it's just going to be inferior to mm-hmm. this. One cover that is worth hearing is Bobby McFerrin's. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> it's entirely acapella and the things that man could do with his voice are mind blowing. Bang, but sing it in the dead of night. Ding ding song in my eyes, I learned to sing. Ding dum ba dum, dum ba dum. All your life, dum bu dum, dum du du. We're only waiting for this moment to be afraid. Beep 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 doo doo Yeah, I love this one. So I, I know I dissed on while my guitar gently weeps on side one, and I, I guess the, the the truth is that like for whatever reason, I kind of instinctively back away from all of the Beatles songs that I parse culturally as quote unquote important Beatles. And like, I also don't really care much for yesterday or Hey Jude and I can tolerate, let it be, but I don't love it. Wow. And so in theory, Blackbird is on this list too. Like this is your classic guy with a guitar sitting on the street corner Beatles standard, but nonetheless, I love it. Like it's so disarming. It's, I mean, one of my favorite McCartney modes is when it sounds like he's just like casually banging out a song that's better than anything most songwriters can write in their entire careers. And like, I've just seen a face is another classic example of this for me. Oh, I love that song. You know, one of the things that really strikes me about how self-evidently great this song is is that McCartney kind of chased his whole career because hmm. later on you have Bluebird. I'm a bluebird. I'm a bluebird. I'm a bluebird. I'm a bluebird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have Jenny Wren. Like so many girls, Jenny Wren could sing, but a broken heart took us away. There's probably a handful of others, not necessarily about birds, but in this same sort of mode uh, that he wrote, you know, trying to not necessarily top it, but get close to it. And, you know, I I think he knew like, yeah, this is about as good of a song in this vein that I'm ever going to write. And, you know, it's, it's one of the best plaintive acoustic ballads I can think of by anyone. It's Mm -hmm. for me, it's a, it's a massive highlight on this album. I'm a big fan. Okay, George Harrison is back. The next song is Piggies. Have you seen the little piggies crawling in the dirt? And for all the little piggies, life is getting worse. Always having dirt to play around in. Piggies is a song that makes me realize that 
As much as I love the Beatles and rate their albums very highly, I will never quite qualify as a Beatles fanatic in the same way that I qualify as, say, a Yes fanatic or a Genesis fanatic. Harrison intended Piggies as a commentary on consumerism, with some obviously Orwellian imagery sprinkled in to give it some flavor. And that is how I've always treated it. But that is not how it was treated at the time. The late 60s saw the rise of the use of the term pig as not just a derogatory name for police officers, but also as an insult towards the mainstream establishment generally. And despite Harrison's protests that people were overthinking his song, Piggies became a flashpoint of controversy both for the rising counterculture and for those opposed to said counterculture. It didn't help matters that when Charles Manson induced his followers to kill a bunch of people in 1969, he claimed that he had received some inspiration from the throwaway line, what they need's a damn good whacking, a connection that Harrison found horrifying. In years since, I have frequently seen Piggies put down as one of the obviously bad tracks on this album, and said criticism tends to focus excessively on the song's supposed politics, either for going too far or for not going far enough. I think it's fine. Harrison began work on it during the Revolver Sessions, then shelved it for two years before finding the song manuscript in his parents' attic. The instrumentation centers primarily on strings arranged by George Martin, and on harpsichord played by Chris Thomas, who provides a charming solo in the middle, coming out of an amusing lyrical stretch, sung through a nasally filter, that ends with the phrase that triggered Manson. this be baroque pop yes yeah. <laughs> the song is by no means a masterwork and it might be the weakest of the harrison songs on the album but it, it's at worst in amusing two minutes and it helps contribute to two of the album's most endearing sequencing tricks placing exactly one harrison track per side and placing a three song stretch of animal songs on side two. Oh, i never noticed that wow Mm -hmm. So, Amanda, what do you think of this Little Piggies? I love it. I really do. This is my 11-year-old's favorite song on the album, and that makes sense. It was my favorite, too, when I was a little kid. And as John said, it, it was deliberate social commentary, but the people who get upset with its politics are being either too extreme or not extreme enough are taking it way too seriously. Yes. This is not Masters of War, and it's not meant to be. <laughs> <laughs> As for the line, what they need's a damn good whacking, Harrison said in his book, I Mean Mine, that his mother came up with that. He was stuck for a rhyme, and that was what she suggested. It's, it's such a mid-century mom thing to say. I love it. And he goes on to say in his book, quote, it needed to rhyme with backing, lacking, and had absolutely nothing to do with American policemen or Californian shag nasties. I had to look that one up because it's pretty obvious, but I never heard it before. It basically means ugly slut. It's... 
not my favorite word, but I think, I mean, the song is meant to be more about capitalism than cops, but I mean, whatever the purpose, I think this is a very clever and enjoyable and silly little song. And I love that exaggerated string bit at the very end. Yes. One more time. It reminds me of the the laughter at the end of Within You, Without You. And I think it was done to a similar purpose, just to puncture the song and a little bit of, little, little bit of silliness in. Phil, how about you? I mean, I like Piggies. It's obviously minor. Like, mm-hmm. it's clearly not intended to be one of the tent poles of the album. But it's the kind of track that, again, like I mentioned with I'm So Tired, really works in the context of the White Album in a way that it wouldn't work on a lot of other albums. It's a grout track, and it's a specific White Album grout track. It's, But it's a, just a super fun little song. I love the harpsichord riff, but I, I don't have a ton to say about it. I, I would probably agree with John. It's probably the worst Harrison song on the album. Mm, I disagree, but we'll get to that. <laughs> I mean, I don't even know if that's fair, though, because is it fair to say that when it's something so obviously intended as a silly throwaway. One other little detail I meant to mention that I love about this is Harrison's really exaggerated uh, vocal style in the third verse. Everywhere there's lots of piggies living piggy lives. You can see them out for dinner with the piggy wives. It reminds me a lot of a similar thing that Paul McCartney did a lot. Just like altering the timbre of his voice a little bit. And I don't, I can't think off the top of my head of any other, any other songs where Harrison did that. And it's it's just wonderfully silly and fun. Yeah, I think if I'd heard this one as a kid a lot, I'd like it because that's really my only excuse for liking Maxwell's Silver Hammer at all. <laughs> uh, and I still have a lot of love for songs like All Together Now, Hello Goodbye, and especially Octopus's Garden that I that I just heard around the house a lot growing up. But l- like I said before, the White Album just didn't get much play in the Benell household. And coming to this one later, it just doesn't really do much for me, I have to say. Mm-hmm. Like, w- when I want to hear a song inspired by Animal Farm, I usually reach for No Spill Blood by Oingo Boingo. <laughs> walk on two legs, not on four. Walk on four legs, breaks the law. What happens when we break the law? Okay, well, let's close out the Animal Trilogy on side two. This is Rocky Raccoon. I am Groot. <laughs> Somewhere in the black mining hills of Dakota There lived a young boy named Rocky Raccoon And one day his woman ran off with another guy Hit young Rocky in the eye Rocky didn't like that He said, I'm gonna get that boy So one day he walked into town Booked himself a room in the local saloon Rocky Raccoon Checked into his room only to find Gideon's Bible Rocky had come Equipped with a gun To shoot off the legs of his rival His rival, it seems Had broken his dreams By stealing the girl of his fancy And she called herself Lil But everyone knew her as Nancy Oh, I feel like I've been waiting my whole life for this moment. (laughs) 
Rocky Raccoon is one of Paul McCartney's best songs. I am not kidding. On its surface, this is a simple little country and western story song pastiche. Very lighthearted, a little bit goofy, and it might sound like a throwaway, but it is a lot more clever than it seems. There is so much wordplay going on here, and some of it doesn't even pay off right away. You have to pay attention. So the story goes, Rocky gets his heart broken when his woman runs off with another guy and he goes to get revenge, gets to his room at the saloon, he finds Gideon's Bible. Now, for anyone who somehow may not have encountered those, the Gideons are an organization that distributes Bibles, most famously to hotels. It's very common to find a Gideon's Bible in the drawer in your hotel room. So then he goes and confronts the other dude, gets himself shot, gets patched up by a doctor who smells of gin. Then he goes back to his room and there's Gideon's Bible again, but there's more information about it this time. Gideon checked out and he left it no doubt to help with good Rocky's revival. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a pun on physical revival and religious revival. And it turns out Gideon is a person who just left his Bible behind in the room. <laughs> this whole song is just a big shaggy dog story that leads up to a pretty good pun. Shaggy raccoon story. Yes, that's exactly what it is. And I, I think this is so smart and silly and fun. And the whole framework for that pun is good, too. You know, right from the beginning, you know you're in for a silly good time with that ridiculous Western American accent there in the beginning. And then there's surreal goofiness, like her name was McGill and she called herself Lil, but everyone knew her as Nancy. It's one of my favorite McCartney lyrics. No joke whatsoever. And there's a really great piano solo from George Martin. I'm pretty sure that's a real tack piano, by which I mean a piano with actual thumbtacks or nails pushed into the hammers. That's that's what's hitting the strings, and that's what gives it that great staccato sound. And there's also a honky-tonk piano in which the whole thing is just slightly detuned to make it sound like a beat-up old piano that's been played in a bar for years and years. And it sounds similar, but I think this really is a tack piano. And if my sources are correct, and it does sound like this to me, he played it at half tempo and it was sped up, similar to how they did in my life, but to very different effect. And this is the first time in a long while that John played a harmonica on a Beatles song and the last one he would ever do. Now, for something as clever and witty as this is, it is amazing to me that Paul came up with it more or less on the fly. The majority of the song was done in one day with just mixing and some slight overdubs later on in only about 10 takes. And on Anthology 3, you can hear one of the earlier versions where he can't, he hadn't quite worked out all the lyrics yet, especially in the intro, and he kind of sounds like Drunk Elvis. The Rocky Raccoon. He was a fool unto himself. And he would not swallow his foolish pride. Mind you, coming from a little town in Minnesota. Ooh, that sounds like Vegas years Elvis so much. <laughs> yes, it that does. young guy did when a fellow went and stole his chick away from him. Gotta get that Gatorade. <laughs> <laughs> now, you would think that Lennon would have helped out with the lyrics, given that this kind of wordplay was a lot more in Lennon's wheelhouse than McCartney's. But John said not. In fact, he was very rude about the song, as he often was. But John Shocker. was absolutely wrong. Rocky Raccoon is fantastic, and I will die on this hill. I don't want to write a song that has to do with the Bible. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, so one funny thing before doing the research for this episode, I, I didn't realize that the name Rocky Raccoon was like a sort of like Davy Crockett nickname for an American frontiersman or folk figure. I, I thought that this was a song about an anthropomorphic raccoon, like literally. <laughs> I think he's just got a raccoon skin hat. Yeah, that's what I figured. I, I, and I thought this well before I knew Rocket Raccoon from Guardians of the Galaxy was a thing. I, th- I think I just like conflate, conflated him in, in my mind with like Ranger Rick or something. I had a bunch of those <laughs> magazines around, lying around the house as a kid. But yeah, this is a, this is a great song i fully agree with you on it i i didn't used to think much of it but it's grown on me a lot over the years as, a, as i've kind of let my guard down about stuff like this and actually something that jumps out at me about it musically and, and amanda you might need to give me an assist on this one it's so it's clearly intended as like a country western pastiche but i feel like there's like a sort of classic English folk ballad sensibility to it, like the way it's structured. Yeah, maybe. Well, I realize that these are two very broad categories covering like a very wide range of musical traditions. And there's like a continuous musical lineage we're talking about here. But uh, like when I hear a stanza, like his rival, it seems had broken his dreams by stealing the girl of his fancy. Her name was McGill and she called herself Lil, but everyone knew her as Nancy. Like that strikes me as a rhythm you would hear like in an English or Irish ballad, not an American country song. You might be right. Yeah. Yeah, cuz this yeah, it's sort of a an American country murder ballad hung on a English folk song frame and then just made silly. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's, it might just be Paul like falling back on his songwriting instincts as an English oh, for songwriter. Sure. Yeah. Either way, there's like a whole trend of British songwriters being like fascinated with cowboys and American country music. I'm thinking uh, especially of Elton John's album Tumbleweed Connection, but there's a whole bunch of other examples. Yeah. And Honky Chateau. Yeah. And uh, Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy. Yeah. Yeah. It's a whole thing with Elton John, but (laughs) either way. Yeah. Fantastic song. It's not just a great song. I feel like this is one of the songs that best represents why I love this album so much. Because, like, there aren't a lot of of rock songs. I'm sorry. There's not a lot of albums made by rock artists that would have us that could have a song like this because it's it's such a silly throwaway from a certain angle. And and someone would be like, oh, I don't know. We have to have it have like a little more message. It's got to have a little more weight to it. And, you know, they wouldn't allow themselves to relax and write a song like this. But, you know. Paul McCartney, I have to assume, high as hell, just channeling his songwriting id in its purest form, saying, "Oh, I'll borrow a little bit of this, and like, you know, I could, I, I like these American elements. I'll, I'll, I'll graft onto this, and let's say, let's see how this comes together." It's like, "Oh, I've come up with a masterpiece." Mm-hmm. Like, and he's just going to do that, and you know, again, like the combination of, again, of of a pure skill and not being full of himself. It's it's a perfect song that could come from him, and this is an album that's just going to collect all these little odds and ends that aren't going to happen otherwise necessarily, and this certainly wouldn't happen in one place. So yeah, mm-hmm. I'm I'm in, I'm totally in love with this, and again, like this is a, a great example of again why this might be my favorite side. Yeah. yeah, this is one of the songs that like if you're going to play that stupid game where you cut the white album down to one disc, that's a stupid game. I How don't play that I? game. This might not make the cut, but that's that would be to that disc's great loss. Yeah. That's why it's great that this is a double album, because stuff like I'm So Tired and Rocky Raccoon and probably Piggies, it wouldn't really work on a single album. They need no. room. They need nope. all that room to stretch out. Right. This album absolutely needed to be double. Definitely. In a way that a lot of double albums don't. 
Yeah, well, that's something that I've like gradually realized in getting ready for this episode is that like the White Album kind of like expanded the range of the type of songs that could conceivably make it onto an album, not just a Beatles album, but like anyone's album. Yeah. And this is what I was thinking about when I was talking on the Wildflowers episode, how that would have been better if they had just gone ahead and made it a double album. Then it could have been structured similarly to this and all the lesser songs would have had a place. But this is the kind of track that's like the definitive when people talk about like, oh, this is so and so a band's white album. It usually means there's like silly tracks like this on it, because the kind of things where, you know, if you're making a tight 45 minutes, you know, you're going to want to, you know, go with all your heavy hitters. Mm -hmm. But I'm thinking of like the album that's actually been coming to mind for me thinking about this is Ween's debut, God Ween Satan, The Oneness, (laughs) (laughs) which is just filled with all these kind of wild songs that if they were trying to make a tight 45 minute album, wouldn't make it. I'm in the mood to move to the left three feet, goddammit. But I would never, ever, ever lose them because... These kinds of they just work and they make the whole thing greater. Rocky Raccoon is Bubblebee. I saw you walking with Rocky Raccoon. The only other real thing I have to say about this song is that if you want to hear a similarly structured song, but with the pompousness turned up to 100 and with all of the humor sucked out, (laughs) might I recommend The Ballad of Billy the Kid by Billy Joel, which is a very similar song except it's massively pretentious and over the top. And I still enjoy it, but I mean, it's obviously not as good as this. Well, sign me up. From a town known as Wheeling, West Virginia Rode a boy with a six-gun in his hand And his daring life of crime Made him a legend in his time East and West of the Rio Grande. I actually do like it, despite the fact that I described it that way. But of course you do. <laughs> it's just not as good as Rocky Raccoon. But that doesn't really sound are. like that much of an insult. <laughs> Okay, well, speaking of songs that people wrongly think shouldn't be on the White Album because Mm -hmm. those people are wrong, this is Ringo with Don't Pass Me By. Ringo! I hear the clock a ticking on the mantel shelf See the hands are moving, but I'm by myself I wonder where you are tonight Why I'm by myself, I don't see you does it mean you don't love me anymore? Don't pass me by, don't make me cry, don't make me blue. Cause you know, darling, I love only you. You'll never know it hurt me so. I'll hate to see you go, don't pass me by. So first off, I think we need a round of applause for Ringo Starr. Go Ringo! He's the greatest conductor Shining Time Station ever had. Damn right he was. (laughs) And you may call me Mr. Conductor. 
He made the first and best Beatles guest appearance on The Simpsons. In answer to your question, yes, we do have hamburgers and fries in England, but we call French fries chips. Love, Ringo. And he eats his pizza crust first. Glad the time has come to eat our pizza crust first. <laughs> That's actually a lie. Ringo Starr has never eaten pizza in his life. Fun fact. Because he grew up with gastrointestinal problems and he's allergic to garlic, onions, and spices. But he still mm-hmm. did Pizza Hut a solid because he's just that great of a dude. But most importantly, he's Ringo. Despite all of the guff you may have heard about him, the Beatles would not be the Beatles without Ringo Starr. And the White True Album story. would not be the White Album without Don't Pass Me By. True story. So Ringo had sung numerous times on Beatles albums before, including on Act Naturally, With a Little Help from My Friends, Yellow Submarine, What Goes On, and a gender-bending cover of Boys by the Shirelles back on their debut, Please Please Me. But this is his first recorded composition, at least like solo composition. I think he had some co-writing credits before this. And it apparently dates back to at least 1963, according to various press reports and interviews with the band from that era. And it's theorized that the only reason it made it onto the album and the reason the White Album is a double album in the first place is because the Beatles were eager to finish off their recording contract. And so they just stuffed the album with whatever they had lying around. So, hey, Ringo, you get a song, too. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So Don't Pass Me By often gets written off as one of the lesser songs on the White Album, but I've always really enjoyed it. So the instrumentation is just Ringo, Paul, and guest violinist Jack Fallon, but it's got like this dense, thick, hazy atmosphere, like you're listening to the song through a mirage or something like that. And this can be chalked up to a bunch of interesting production and arrangement decisions. So Ringo's vocals on the song are double-tracked, and the song features both Paul on grand piano and Ringo again on tack piano, and both of these parts get run through a Leslie speaker. And on top of that, Ringo overdubs sleigh bells, cowbell, maracas, and congas onto his drum part. And it, it's tempting to accuse the song of not having much going on under all of the effects and overdubs, but actually Anthology 3 features a mix that's just vocals and the rhythm track, and I think it holds up pretty well. Mm-hmm. I listen for your footsteps Coming up the drive Listen for your footsteps But they don't arrive Waiting for you not here On my old front door I don't hear it Does it mean you don't love me anymore? I've always liked this song. Ringo was a thwarted country singer all along. Really? Oh, yes. I just listened to him in Act Naturally, which is a Buck Owens cover, or What Goes On. He absolutely loved American country and Western music and culture. And before he joined the Beatles, he briefly considered emigrating to Texas. So it is not even a tiny bit of a surprise that his first composition would be a country song. And I'm not going to try to tell anybody it's an especially good country song, but it's an extremely charming one. And everybody involved went all in on it, and it deserved that amount of effort. Now, there's two things about the song that I just learned recently, and they both have to do with the lyrics. First up is the line, you were in a car crash and you lost your hair, which I always took just as a sign that Ringo's not the world's greatest songwriter, because I always took that literally. 
And then a while ago, I found out it's just an expression. It just means freaked out. And I felt like kind of an idiot because I've heard the inverse of that. Like, okay, okay, keep your hair on. And it, yeah, I mean, it's still not a great line, but it's a lot better than I, I originally thought it was. Holy cow, I love that line. <laughs> it's so silly. I prefer to read it literally. <laughs> <laughs> it makes I've, me giggle that way. <laughs> it does. But, you know, I've been in several car crashes and none of them made me lose my hair. <laughs> Now, the other thing is that lyrically, this is very, very similar to the foundation song, Build Me Up Buttercup, which I have a little clip of here just to jog everybody's memories. One of the great call and response songs. I love that song. And I always sort of assumed that the foundation song had influenced Don't Pass Me By because Ringo has said himself that he had tried to write songs several times before and he'd play them for the other guys and they would just tell him what other song it sounded like because he just kept accidentally rewriting other stuff that he knew. But it is a damn good thing I checked my facts because from the sound of it, I had always thought Build Me Up Buttercup came out like around 1965-ish, but it turns out it was released the same month as the White Album, November 1968. So this is purely coincidental, but I still really love the similarities. All right, John, build this song up, Buttercup. I love this song. It's funny. I was actually going to specifically quote uh, the the "and you lost your hair" line. <laughs> it's the part that I absolutely adore in this. Uh, it, it's it's so silly. It's delightful. If you're listening to this song for the first time and you've you know you're just starting to lose yourself into the murk, it's like I don't know where this is going, and then like that pops. And it's like wait, wait, what happened? And then you <laughs> then you're like. Then you listen to the track again, just like, nope, nope, that's what happened. And then, like, the way he delivers it, even though he's just, like, seen it straight the same way that he is the rest of the song, like, that almost makes it better. It, mm-hmm. it, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a comic element just, like, loaded into it that he seems fully aware of, and he, he plays it up so well. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I'll mention, I love the fiddle. I love the violin part. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That ain't a violin. That's a fiddle. That is a fiddle. Is that a fiddle? That makes sense. <laughs> Fine. Uh, it, it, it gives a, I don't even want to say sense of class, but like almost a sense of redneck class to it that gives an extra <laughs> bit of authenticity. And again, like just, just the, 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 in terms of the flow of the album, in terms of the flow of the side, like you, you can't get rid of this song and have the flow of this side work. Like you have to be coming out of, of, uh, Rocky Raccoon into this. Yeah. It just, I, I can't even necessarily explain why, but I, I can't conceive any other pairing of tracks uh, for, for, for this to work. I, I, I love it. And also, again, it's worth, worth noting with, with sequencing tricks, um, you know, this is the one uh, Ringo son on uh, the, on the first half of the album. And you're going to have another Ringo son uh, on the second half, again, another one of the ways that this this album perfectly balances itself. It's a perfectly hedged portfolio of songs. <laughs> yes. In regard to the sequencing, there is kind of a sense like that Rocky Raccoon has emerged from the frontier and now he's walking around in like an yes. old west town or something yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah. 
I was once listening to the the Beatles station on satellite radio and they said, now we're going to do a segment where we play all the Beatles country songs. And I thought, wait, what? There's like two. But the segment went on for about a half an hour. And I just, it, you know, hearing all of them lined up one after the other, I thought, damn, this <laughs> like a whole subgenre. So Phil, talk to me about Ringo. Well, I love Ringo as a drummer just in general. I yes. think yeah. he's probably the one element of the Beatles that you could actually say is underrated because his drumming For is sure. extremely good. I also love the production on this song. This song just sounds so good. I love that kind of big cavernous lurching halfway drunken sound to it. Yeah. Yes. And the only other thing I really have to say about it is that if you want to say it's a lesser song on the White Album, I mean, it's obviously a lesser song, but I kind of reject the idea that there are very many lesser songs on the White Album at all. Yeah. Because I think there's there's obviously some major songs, you know, While My Guitar Gently Weeps, et cetera, et cetera. But to me, a lot of the White Album in its sequencing, it's not intended as explicitly as it is on side two of Abbey Road. But it basically works for a lot of the same reason. A lot of the songs are not really great standalone songs, but just all piled up and playing one after the other. The effect is just, you know, sidelong chunks of music that I would not want to change a single bit of. (laughs) And Don't Pass Me By falls very much into that category. It is objectively a minor song, but I absolutely love it and wouldn't dream of cutting it. Yeah. yeah, and for a minor song, they really did the production up nice. Because again, this yeah. the song features a grand piano and attack piano. They're both run yep. through a Leslie speaker. Like it's they so really tried hard to make it sound like it does. Yeah, and like and to Phil's point, even if like individually, not all the songs are, you know, barn burners. They all serve the album. They all have their place and you couldn't get rid of a single one of them and have as good an album. Right. The, the White Album is such an album. Yes. Like, I think kind of notoriously, like the Beatles one compilation does not feature a single track from the White Album because none mm-hmm. of the songs on this album hit number one. Not even Wild Honey Pie. Not even Shockingly. Wild Honey Pie. But like more than any other Beatles album, this is the album of theirs that... I always like I never pull it out and just play a track or two. This is the definitive. When I want to hear the White Album, I listen to the whole thing and I don't skip a single track. Yep. It's kind of the the thesis statement of our podcast is the White Album. Very much. Okay, well, let's move on. So here's Paul McCartney with a charming little ditty fun for the whole family. This is (laughs) Why Don't We Do It in the Road. Speaking of mission statements for our podcast. that this track had a deep backstory of great historical import, (laughs) then I regret to inform you that the roots of this song come from the band's 1968 stay in India when Paul saw two monkeys doing it in the road. 
As there was not anybody present to inform Paul that the monkeys, they don't do it. They make a love. <laughs> zookeeper, zookeeper, those two monkeys are killing each other. <laughs> you beat me to it. <laughs> he ultimately decided to take the simplest course in crafting the lyrics for this. An early version of the song was an acoustic guitar number with McCartney playing by himself. But by the end, this had become a 12-bar blues number, played over 34 measures, done as a collaboration between Paul and Ringo. Paul's rationale for not including John and George was that they were off working on something else. In this case, the string overdubs for Piggies and Glass Onion, which might seem reasonable. But John held a grudge for years about Paul not including him in the recording for this. While my main inclination is to roll my eyes about this a bit, as another example of what a messed up work environment this band had become at this point, <laughs> I actually kind of get it. Because for such a throwaway number, this is also kind of a hot groove. Yeah. With Paul throwing himself all the way into his delivery. This track is absolutely ridiculous. But it's also less than two minutes long. And just as I love wild honey pie from the first side, I've come to love why don't we do it in the road. Yeah, I, I like the uh, the version that you mentioned, John, which is uh, the, the original version. It's on the anthology because, yeah, it's just Paul on acoustic guitar. And you really get a sense of how, like, quickly he can flip a switch between the sweet, gentle Paul voice and the loud, like, strident blues man Paul voice. No one will be watching us. Why don't we do it in the road? 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 Yeah, why don't we do it in the road? No one will be watching us. Why don't we do it in the road? This really sounds like something that could be on that first Paul McCartney solo album. Yeah, absolutely. This is a man who really wants to do it in the road. <laughs> Phil, what do, you, what do you think of this one? It's so dumb and so <laughs> stupid. Yeah. A song so on its face, stupid and throwaway that criticizing it for being a stupid throwaway just seems pointless. Yeah. Like, why criticize this obviously intentionally stupid throwaway for being a stupid throwaway? Yeah. It's fun. And it lasts like a minute and a half. I always enjoyed it. Yeah, I love that Paul saw two monkeys copulating and thought like, oh, my, how delightful. I'm going to go write a song about that. <laughs> like, it's. It's ridiculous. I, I first heard this song in my teens, and I had I had no idea the Beatles got so down and dirty at any point. It's a long way from I want to hold your hand. <laughs> it's the devil's music. This song was another source of great confusion for me as a small child, because I didn't know what Paul wanted to do in the road so bad. <laughs> and so after much thought, seriously, I remember obsessing about this. I decided he was lighting off firecrackers because that, sure. that was where we always did that on the 4th of July. You light your fountains and pagodas and Catherine wheels out in the middle of the street so they don't burn up the yard. And the, the no one will be watching us part didn't fit, but I just could not figure out what else he could possibly be talking about. And I get it now, obviously, but I still think of firecrackers whenever I hear this song. 
We should come up with like chased other chased things that he could be referring to, like looking both ways before you cross the street. Yeah, or riding bikes. <laughs> Setting up the classic uh, Rube Goldberg device-based board game, Mousetrap. Solving the trolley problem. <laughs> so yeah, interpretation aside, this might be a throwaway, but only by 1968 Paul McCartney standards, really. Because, I mean, like John said, it is smoking. I always thought this was another one-man band deal, and I was surprised when I found out it's Ringo on the drums, because it doesn't sound like him. This sounds like a Paul drum part. So I assume Paul was standing three inches behind Ringo and giving him careful instructions the whole time. Sounds right. So, yeah, this ridiculous, dumb, stupid song is awesome. Okay, well, let's go on to another McCartney song. It's another short one, and it's of a completely different variety. This is a lovely little song called I Will. Who knows how long I've loved you You know I love you still albums every single Beatles song was a love song or at least a song pertaining to some aspect of a romantic relationship good or bad and this changed starting with John Lennon's existentialist musings on the song Nowhere Man from Rubber Soul and from that point onward any subject was fair game taxes submarines marijuana usually in the case of Paul McCartney uh, whether one is a walrus and so in the midst of the dizzying array of subject matter on the White Album a straightforward love song like I Will almost feels like an outlier, like a relic from an earlier era, but McCartney nails it. Like for my money, this might be his greatest love song or at least very close to it. Top five. So I will is deceptively simple, but there's a lot going on. The song apparently took 67 takes to get right. And I can understand that when I listen closely to the subtle details in the mix. So the percussion is a mix of John on woodblock and Ringo on bongos, maracas and cymbals. And one element that I'd never noticed is that Paul performs the bass line acapella. That's him going dum, 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 dum. Yeah. <laughs> All of these elements are extremely subtle and never overwhelm the mix. They're only there to give the arrangement like a certain elegance and warmth. And, and the coup de grace is that guitar figure at the end of each iteration of the title, which uh, the cars used on My Best Friend's Girl. She's my best friend's girl. Same 
thing. Wow. I never noticed that, but you are absolutely correct. So someone we haven't really discussed yet is Donovan, who was also at the Maharishi's Ashram, and he had a big influence on the songwriting on the White Album. So in particular, his songwriting style is like apparently filled with descending chord patterns, which you can hear on Dear Prudence, uh, Julia, which we'll talk about in just a few minutes, While My Guitar Gently Weeps, and this song. He also taught John Lennon the claw hammer style of guitar picking and apparently helped him chase a paparazzo into the jungle. Those were the days. Sounds like fun times. And finally, I have a few covers of this song to play. So the first one is by Alison Krauss, and her version is just lovely because that's just generally what Alison Krauss does. I love this cover. This next one is specifically for Phil. I'm going to play a chiptune cover by the band Anamanaguchi, which is a New York band that performs songs on vintage video game hardware. So that is just messed up. Sounds like Paperboy. <laughs> I mean, I think they're using the NES sound chip to produce those sounds. But yeah, uh, I, I mostly wanted to play that one because it was as different from the Alison Krauss version as possible. Yeah. <laughs> and so the third and final cover has actually shown up on the show before because I played it as a prank clip in our Radiohead episode because they have a they had a song on Hail to the Thief called I Will. So in 1978, Tim Curry released the album Read My Lips, and it featured a completely inexplicable reggae cover of this song. Oh, no. I feel like I'm having a fever dream right now. All right. So on that note, Phil, what do you think of I Will? The Beatles one, not the Tim Curry one. Just an absolutely gorgeous song. I I often hear people kind of badmouth this one. Again, it's like an example of Paul McCartney being cutesy or whatever. But no, no, this is just such a such a great song. Just one of his absolutely best melodies. Just a gorgeous melody that, again, you could use this melody in so many other contexts. Again, like the chiptune version of it. It somehow works. It's got a lovely little simple arrangement that kind of almost hides how complicated the melody is. Just it's another song like Martha, my dear, that just really shows that how at this point in his career, when he really applied himself to it, Paul McCartney was probably like the best pop songwriter in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, Rich, you mentioned uh, Paul doing the baseline acapella. And I remember when I got the 2018 mix of the White Album, uh, that was the first time uh, I, I noticed that acapella Me too. Uh, bass line of him singing along with it. And 
I remember it just kind of knocked me across the room. Like I'd been picking up all these these interesting little details. And then I heard this and I was like, wait, what is that? And then I would play it back. It's like, that is the most charming thing I think mm-hmm. I've ever heard. Who knows how long I've loved you. You know I love you still. It's not necessary, but like it, 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 it just makes the song so much more delightful. And it was already a fantastic, delightful song. This song's just dripping with whimsy and melodic genius. And again, like, yes, it's a quote unquote lightweight song. And it's a masterful lightweight song done by possibly the best person at doing lightweight songs in the world at that point and mm-hmm. for some time thereafter. Like A plus would listen again. Yeah, it's, a, it's an absolute A plus song. Definitely. I like that that remix like cranked up Paul McCartney's bass on like every song, whether or not he played it on a bass or on his voice. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It cranked up the bass, whether it was actually a bass or not. <laughs> <laughs> Amanda, talk to me about this song. Oh, Paul McCartney was on fire making this album. And he, when Paul McCartney's at the top of his game, honestly, that's just, like Phil said, that's the top of anybody's game. Nobody could keep up with him when it came to writing pop songs. And I had the same experience as John with that baseline when I was listening to the remix. I think I was listening through headphones and about halfway through, I went, hang on, he's singing that. And it it, it was exactly the same thing. It shocked me and threw this whole song and onto just another level entirely. And this is one that I have always, always, always loved. I mean, I, I played the Alison Krauss cover of it at my wedding. I used to sing this to my daughter as a lullaby when she was a baby. This, it, this song lives in my heart. And I can't, I don't know if I can put it any more strongly than that. Fun fact, Paul McCartney is so talented that that bass line is not an overdub. He's singing both vocal lines at the same time. Yeah, Little known fact. All right. Well, let's close out side <laughs> two. So this is our final John Lennon song of the side end of the disc. This is called Julia. Half of what I say is meaningless. But I say it just to reach you, Julia. Julia. is the one and only pure Lennon solo track in the Beatles catalog. Mm -hmm. There is no instrumentation beyond his acoustic guitar and no vocals that are not his. It's always been interesting to me that the Beatles chose to open this side with a pure McCartney track and close it with a pure Lennon track. Mm -hmm. The song is supposedly about Lennon's mother, Julia, but it's also about Yoko Ono, And really, it always felt more like a song about Yoko Ono than it does about Lennon's mother. I would have actually never gotten that it was supposed to be about his mother had I not read it in multiple places over the course of my life. 
and uh, not going to delve too deeply into this, but it's more than a bit strange that Lennon felt the need to combine a song about his mother with a song about his longing for Yoko Ono, (laughs) which combined with the fact that Lennon supposedly frequently referred to Ono as mother, I'll, I'll just... I'll just let the listeners draw their own conclusions and drop that right now. Well, every girl he goes out with becomes his mother in the end. (laughs) (laughs) Is that his mother on the phone? (laughs) As for the song itself, it's very nice. Although I've, it's never been one of my favorite songs on the White Album. I think it works very well as a side closer. And in fact, a closer for the whole first album. Yeah. It's a very quiet unadorned acoustic song that, again, probably wouldn't have made the cut if this was getting cut down to a single album. So while researching this song for the episode, I learned that Lennon sought advice from Donovan, like Rich was talking about. And that definitely makes sense to me, but this song definitely has a very Donovan-like flavor to it. The sun was going down behind a tattoo tree and the simple act of no stroke put diamonds in the sea And all because of the phosphorus there in quantity As I dug a dick in me in Mexico And one other note is apparently this song was released as the B-side to the Obladi Oblada single. which uh, I feel like that just had to be someone saying, other than Revolution 9, what would be the single worst match for this song that we could possibly put on the (laughs) B-side? And I think they did a pretty good job. This is another really gorgeous one and another very good sequencing trick. I mean, just like Don't Pass Me By had to come after Rocky Raccoon, Julia has to come after I Will. They They go together. And the way I think to square the Julia slash Yoko interpretation is he's telling his mother about his new love. Um, And Ocean Child is reportedly what Yoko's name means. And the thing about John was he, he, he was a deeply traumatized person when it came to his mother. And he wrote a lot of songs trying to kind of work through his issues. And I think this is for sure the most beautiful of those. Uh, I I feel like this is a wild success. If you listen to the bonus tracks on the 2018 re-release, there's an interesting early take where you can hear him kind of dithering about whether to pick or strum the guitar part. Yeah, maybe I should strum it first. Huh? Half of what I say is meaningless But I say it just to reach you, Julia, Julia, Julia. And he says it's easier to sing along with if he strums it, but he likes the sound of the finger-picked one better. And I don't know, evidently it didn't occur to him that he could do them separately. <laughs> 
But I mean, the strummed version is also lovely, but it is definitely to the world's benefit that he went with the finger picking. This is spectacular. Yeah, yeah I, I think this one's clearly really, really good, but it's it's honestly never really jumped out at me that much. And I think part of that is that it it sort of reminds me of Dear Prudence, which to me is clearly mm. the superior song. Uh, and as we've and as we discussed in the last song and talked about a little bit here, like uh, John, John Lennon was using songwriting and performing techniques that he picked up from Donovan uh, when he wrote both of those songs. So there's the, there's a link between them. Uh, but at the same time, yet yeah, this is still really good. And that kind of and the fact that I even feel the need to make that observation, like kind of casts light on what an embarrassment of riches this album really is, because like yeah. uh, on pretty much any other album from this era, including Donovan's albums, uh, if I heard two songs that were as similar to each other as Julia and Dear Prudence, it really wouldn't occur to me to ding the album for it, because like most artists have a fairly consistent songwriting voice and stick to a very fairly limited sonic palette. So like it only jumps out at me in the context of the White Album because the Beatles are like throwing so many different completely wild sounds and styles at me constantly like uh, this is honestly a great song like I'm not dissing it 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 only feels like a lesser version of another song on the album because this album is just such a wild tapestry so I feel like this is another example of the perfect of a perfect match between song and album placement because I feel like Julia has to be the closer of this side on the first half of the album. I feel like the this side and the first half of the album has to close with Julia. Because among other things, for instance, you know, we haven't had a Lennon song in a little while at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is there's only two Lennon songs on this side. It's I'm so tired and Julia. And you know, you 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 have to have something in this spot to 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 be a Lennon song to to somewhat balance out all the McCartney that we've had. You know, I, I think it's it's interesting that, yes, this this is uh, somewhat of a rewrite or at least has echoes of Dear Prudence. But I think that works as a framing device oh. that the that the that the first Lennon song on this album on the first half of this album and the the closer of the first half of the album would uh, have a lot of similarities. Um, I like that. Again, I, I don't think that the song as an entity unto itself is top tier relative to the material on here i think it's a nice quiet plaintive ballad i think it's you know enjoyable i don't love it in the context of you know comparing it straight up with you know all the other songs on here but again as a function of where it fits in terms of making sure that the the album uh, you know proceeds in a way that is viscerally satisfying, even if you're not consciously aware of why it's viscerally satisfying, it's perfect for where it is. And again, it's a it's another example of you know why this is the greatest sequenced album of all time. Mm-hmm. Also, I feel like at some point we need to begrudgingly acknowledge the existence of the remix album, the Gray Album by Danger Mouse, which consists of oh, yeah. mashups of instrumental tracks from the White Album and vocal tracks from Jay Z's The Black Album. I like the Gray Album. I do too, actually. Yeah, it, it was a pretty big deal in underground circles, and it helped popularize the whole concept of the mashup, as far as I'm aware. And I, I bring this up specifically now because Danger Mouse mashes up Julia with the Jay Z track "Dirt Off Your Shoulder." Uh, yeah. Feeling like a pimp, nigga gone, brush your shoulders off. Ladies is pimps too, gone, brush your shoulders off. Niggas is crazy, baby, don't forget that boy told you kid. 
You can barely tell it's Julia. So there it is. It's very Danger Mouse. All right. Well, that closes out side two and the first LP of the White Album. So I have a couple thoughts. Uh, so first about the Beatles in general. So going into this episode, uh, as it was coming up, I was kind of intimidated by the prospect of talking about the Beatles because they're they're such an encyclopedia subject unto themselves. Like you can get lost in like an avalanche of information and facts and interviews and statistics uh, when, when reading up about them. Uh, but what's fun about that, especially for the purposes of this podcast, is that like Every single song has an interesting story behind it, especially coming at this particular moment in their career, like when Beatlemania had grown into like such a lore Mm -hmm. and they'd found themselves like in India occupying a place in culture that few, if any, bands could claim. So like whether or not the Beatles are the best band of all time uh, rests purely on your own taste. But it's undeniable that the landscape of the Beatles is just so fascinating. And second, about the White Album itself. Uh, so something that I that I share with John is that both of us love like messy, unwieldy albums that are just like overflowing with ideas. Uh, and even if not all of them work, like the, the larger canvas means that the artists really just go all out and I'd, like try a bunch of things that they wouldn't have done on a shorter album. Yeah. And like the White Album set the template for this entire type of album. And so, and it's true that sometimes like this results in London Calling or Sign of the Times and other times it results in like Sandinista or Emancipation. Uh, But I like that this album like enabled musicians to just really go for broke. And I think that popular music in general is more interesting for its existence. Yeah. that brings us to the end of disc one of the white album so check your podcast feeds tomorrow to hear us talk all about disc two this time around we're going to be joined by producer mike who wouldn't miss out on revolution nine for all the Miritzbau box sets in the world in the meantime thanks for listening keep as cool as you can and if you decide to do it in the road just make sure no one's watching End of part two.